and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world's time zones. Prolific as they are in each and every one, covered like a blanket by this program, the largest of its kind in the world, Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. It's my honor and privilege to be escorting you through the weekend. And in a moment, well, a couple of moments, to be honest, we're going to talk about Roswell. As you know, it's the 60th anniversary of Roswell. My guest tonight is going to be talking about Roswell. And here in the first hour, we're going to be talking about Roswell for a really good reason. Breaking news. First, though, let us look at what's going on in the world. Never all that pleasant. Um, A Jeep Cherokee, I'm sure you've seen this if you watch the news. How could you miss it? Trailing a cascade of flames, rammed into Glasgow's airport terminal on Saturday, shattering glass doors just yards from passengers at at the check-in counters. Police said they believe the attack was linked to two car bombings, Two car bombs, rather, found in London the, the previous day. Britain raised its terror alert to critical. That would be the highest possible level. And the Bush administration announced plans to increase security at airports and on mass transit. Now, there is a lot of speculation that this may be al-Qaeda, uh, that they are linked and that it has all the signatures of al-Qaeda and all the rest of it. Well, if that's true, not to belittle the tragedy of the attack. But seems like kind of a step down for Al-Qaeda. I mean, this is one vehicle that rammed into the the airport. And I think a guy poured some gasoline on himself and set himself on fire. Horrible, of course. But somehow or another... Uh, in scale, not a whole lot. The car bomb scare in London and the attack Saturday at the Glasgow airport underscore the need for secure borders for the U.S., according to one of our Republican presidential hopefuls, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Quoting here, this is the United Kingdom, he said. They have security that is every bit Equal to ours, they have intelligence services that even have had more experience with terrorism than ours. He said, you know, they have, uh, they have to be subjected to this. We're in an era in which we need to know everyone who's in the United States. Makes sense. Hong Kong's red flag was raised. Now, I don't know who wrote this, but it says... Hong Kong's red flag was raised into a cloudy blue sky Sunday. (laughs) A cloudy blue sky as a former British colony marked the 10th anniversary of its handover to China and bid farewell to a rocky decade of financial woes, disease outbreaks, and, of course, economic recovery. The next 10 years could be just every bit as challenging for the bustling city on uh, China's southern coast. Hong Kong will likely grapple with democratic reform and face growing competition from other Asian cities, threatening its position as a global business capital. The harder president, this is a uh, an analysis 
which concludes only the Iraqis can win the war. The harder President Bush has pushed to win in Iraq, the closer he has come to losing. The question is no longer whether the U.S. military can fully stabilize Iraq. It cannot. Now, they don't say in the story who did the analysis. Returning residents who had evacuated their homes this week are keeping a very close watch tonight on the Brazos River, which officials expected to swell yet again on Sunday after opening another floodgate at a nearby lake. The river expected to crest at about 26 feet, a foot above flood stage. That's a foot of water. That's a lot. Brazos River Authority officials opened a fourth floodgate at the Possum Kingdom Lake in North Texas on Saturday afternoon. All right, in a moment, it's a very serious flooding, uh, very serious in Texas. In a moment, we're going to look at some breaking news about Roswell. What I'm about to read you comes from news.com.au, meaning uh, from Australia, news.com in Australia. And this is a hell of a story. Some of you may already have heard this. The news has been kind of around a little. Exactly 60 years ago, a light aircraft was flying over the Cascade Mountains in Washington State at a height of around 3,000 meters. Suddenly, a brilliant flash of light illuminated the aircraft. Visibility was good as pilot, uh, pilot Kenneth Arnold scanned the sky to find the source of the light. He saw a group of nine shiny metallic objects flying in formation. He estimated their speed as being around 2,600 kilometers per hour, nearly three times faster than the top speed of any kind of jet at the time. Soon, similar reports began coming in from all over America. This wasn't just the world's first UFO sighting. It was the birth of a phenomena, one that still exercises an extraordinary fascination. Military officials issued a press release uh, which began, quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain position, gain possession, rather, of a disc. The headline screamed, Flying Disc Captured by Air Force. Yet just 24 hours later, the military changed their story. They claimed the object they'd first seen was a flying disc. It was actually a weather balloon that had crashed on a nearby ranch. The key witness, Major Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer who had gone to the ranch to recover the wreckage, he described the metal as being wafer-thin but incredibly tough. It was as light as balsa wood but couldn't be cut and couldn't be burned. These and similar accounts of the incident have largely been dismissed by all except the most dedicated believers. Now, a truly astonishing new twist. Last week, a new twist to Roswell. Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public relations officer at the base in 1947 and was a man who issued the original and subsequent press releases after the crash on the orders of the base commander then, Colonel William Blanchard. He, he, Hout, 
died last year, but he left a sworn affidavit to be opened only after his death. Last week, the text was released and asserts that the weather balloon claim was a cover story and that the real object had been recovered by the military and stored in a hangar. He described seeing not just the craft, but alien bodies. He wasn't the first Roswell witness to talk about alien bodies. Local undertaker Glenn Dennis had long claimed he was contacted by authorities at Roswell shortly after the crash and asked to provide a number of child-sized coffins. When he arrived at the base, he was apparently told by a nurse who later disappeared that a UFO had indeed crashed and that small humanoid extraterrestrials had been recovered. But how is only one of the original participants, the only one, to claim to have seen alien bodies. Now listen carefully. Hout's affidavit talks about a high-level meeting he attended with base commander Colonel William Blanchard and the commander of the 8th Army Air Force, General Roger Ramey. Hout states that at this meeting, pieces of wreckage were handed around for participants to touch with nobody able to identify the kind of material. He says the press release was issued because local officials were already aware of the crash site, but in fact, there had been a second crash site where more debris from the craft had fallen. The plan was that an announcement acknowledging the first site, which had been discovered by a farmer, would divert attention from the second and more important location. How it also spoke about a cleanup operation where, for months afterwards, military personnel scoured both crash sites, searching for all remaining pieces of debris, removing them, and erasing all signs that anything unusual had occurred. This ties in with claims made by locals that debris collected as souvenirs was seized by the military. Hout then tells how Colonel Blanchard took him to Building 84, one of the hangars at Roswell, and showed him the craft itself. He describes a metallic egg-shaped object around 3.6 meters to 4.5 meters in length and around 1.8 meters wide. He said he saw no windows, no wings, no tail, landing gear, or any other feature. He also saw the alien bodies. He saw two bodies on the floor partially covered by uh, some sort of blanket, I guess. They're, they're described in a statement um, as about 1.2 meters tall with disproportionately large heads. Toward the end of the affidavit, Hount concludes, I'm convinced that what I personally observed was some kind of craft and its crew from outer space. What's particularly interesting about Walter Hout is that in the many interviews he gave before his death, he played down his role and he made no such claims. He'd been speaking publicly. Had he been speaking publicly, he surely would have spoken about the craft and the bodies. Did he fear ridicule? Or was the affidavit a sort of deathbed confession from someone who had been a part of a cover-up but who had stayed loyal to the very end. The U.S. government came under huge pressure on Roswell in the 90s. In July of 94, in response to an inquiry from the GAO, General Accounting Office, 
the office of the Secretary of the Air Force published a report. Remember? The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert. The report concluded that the Roswell incident had been attributable to something called Project Mogul, a top-secret project using high-altitude balloons to carry sensor equipment into the upper atmosphere, listening for evidence of Soviet nuclear testing. The statements concerning a crashed weather balloon had been for a cover story, they admitted, but not to hide the truth about extraterrestrials. A second U.S. Air Force report concluded uh, and claimed that bodies were recovered by, uh, were actually generated by people having seen crash test dummies that were dropped from the balloons. Remember that? Skeptics, of course, will dismiss the testimony left by Hout, but I don't. Hout, during the time he was alive, never admitted any of this. But in a sealed document, only to be opened upon his death, which has now occurred, everything important that we've heard about Roswell and has come from other sources has now been confirmed by what amounts to a deathbed confession. Not exactly that, but a document to be opened on his death in which he virtually confirms everything that everybody's sort of dug for and feels like they've confirmed. Now, the legal system gives more weight, a very great deal of weight, to a deathbed confession. People just don't lie when they're dying. That's all there is to it. And uh, the legal system actually recognizes that fact, and I do too. Why would he, for all his life, deny this? Uh, However, construct a document only to be opened when he died in his latter age, was written when he was older, that would admit that all of this is absolutely true. I believe it. And I wonder if you do. All these years, we've all heard things about Roswell. Virtually what he admits in this this document. But it's been so easy to, well, not easy to dismiss. But I think this is as close as you're going to get to a smoking gun in the Roswell case. And I wonder if you also believe that. Do you believe this man would have written this to be opened only on his death? A man who saw a extraterrestrial craft, a man who saw alien bodies. Do you believe he would have written this? I believe it. And I would like your opinion. How much weight... Do you, and by the way, our, our guest tonight, uh, Tom, Tom Gary, in the next hour, is going to be talking about this. The news broke just as Tom Gary was getting ready to release his book. But tonight, early, uh, just, oh, I don't know, an hour, two hours, uh, three hours before the program, along comes this uh, news.com.au story, dated, by the way, July 1st. That lays it all out. 
And I called Tom, and I said, my God, Tom, did you know about this? He said, do you have my book? I said, no. He said, it's, it, it is the last chapter. In other words, it broke just as they were getting ready to re- release the book, and they just had enough time to get it in as the last chapter. So he'll have a lot to say about this tonight. But in the meantime, I really thought I would ask you, all of you, whether you believe now, whether this, I don't know, cinches it for you or not. It does for me. Whatever doubts I may have had are pretty much gone now. I just don't think a man in that position in his latter years would construct such a document not to be taken advantage of while he was alive. Not he could have written books. He could have appeared on television. He could have made a fortune telling his story, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't allow this. He denied it. Didn't allow the story to be told until he was dead. I believe him. That means we have been visited from elsewhere. So I want to know what you think. Anyway, here are the numbers. If you're west of the Rockies, 800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 800-825-5033. First time uh, callers, area code 818-501-4721. If you're calling on the wild card lines, and we have many, area code 818-501-4109. And finally, outside the country, You're welcome. Get hold of the international operator. Tell her you want to call 800-893-0903. That's 800-893-0903. West of the Rockies, uh, hello there. You're on the air. Hello. Oh, I actually got you. Wow, that was amazing. Yes. Um, So I I just wanted to call you, Art, and uh, tell you I've listened to you for a long time. I think you're absolutely amazing. Thank you. So, um, about the Roswell thing, though. Yeah, do you believe this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that you see that it all came out now. I've always believed in it, and I just kind of had an intuition about it, but I think it's a great thing. I believe it. I, I just don't, you know, if somebody wanted to tell uh, a wild, what would seem like a wild story like this, right? they'd tell it while they were alive. Uh, if they wanted to make something out of it, you know, they'd go on interview shows, they'd sell the story to God knows who, and they'd make money. But that isn't what the man did. He wrote it all down and said, this is not to be opened until I'm dead. Yeah, exactly. And um, when he said that, it kind of reminded me of uh, my grandfather. He worked at the Pentagon for a long time back in the 60s. He wrote a journal, and my mom still has it, and he told her that not to touch it until 10 years after he died. So we haven't even still got a chance to look at it, but... I'm wondering, you know, there might be something like this, and there's something pretty amazing. Because, I mean, if you were to tell it when you were alive, you'd be trying to get all the fame, the glory, the money, all that. But at the very end, to say it at the very end, I think that makes it totally different. Well, that means, if you believe it, and I I certainly believe it, we have been visited. That's it. We have been visited. And it probably means we're currently being visited. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely think so. You can't I mean, be a I little bit pregnant. What... You know, it, 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 there, there's either life out there or there's not. But to me, this think... means there is, and they've been here. Right, but what do you think, Art? I've listened to you for a long time, and I've heard you 
talked to a lot of different people about it, a lot of different facets of this, like the quickening, everything that's going on with the environment, plus this, you know, the war. And I mean, where do you think this is all going, Art? Really, your honest opinion. I Honestly, I don't know. That is my honest opinion. Um, the quickening is certainly speeding up. The environment is certainly deteriorating faster than projected, even by some of the more dismal models that are out there. Uh, and these two things, visitations and the state of the world, may not even be connected. But now, I believe it. We'll be right back. By the way, if you'd like to go up to coasttocoastam.com, that's coast, T-O, coastam.com. In the upper left-hand side, you'll see Art's webcam, and you'll see uh, what I think is kind of a cute picture of Asia and Dolly. Dolly is our little Philippine immigrant, and she just loves Asia. She absolutely loves Asia. If Asia's crying, Dolly will come running. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. In fact, all the cats have been absolutely wonderful with Asia. Just wonderful. It's a, it is a very cute picture. No two ways about it. Uh, upper left-hand corner of the website where it says Art's webcam. This is uh, this Roswell thing, with what I've read you tonight, I think qualifies... What does it qualify as? The biggest story in human history? Something along those lines? Easily. To me, it means it really happened. We really have been visited. I wonder where they were from, and I wonder what we've done with them. We'll be right back. This may be as close as any of us will get in our lifetimes to the truth about Roswell. Lieutenant Walter Hout was the PR guy at the base in 1947. He's the guy who actually issued the original and subsequent press releases after the crash on the orders of the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. And in this, in this sworn affidavit, only to be opened after his death, he saw it all. The craft, the bodies, admitted to cover up the whole thing. And as I said, I believe him. I believe this. He took an oath, and he kept it. But it doesn't survive his death. And so I believe it. And I bet a lot of you do too, uh, judging from the fast blast that I'm getting right now. Isn't this something? Wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. How you doing, Art? My name is Ralph, and I'm calling from southern Illinois. Hi, Ralph. And I believe it too. Yeah. And I also wanted to... Uh, tell you a wild and strange story that happened to me just a little over 20 years ago down here in southern Illinois. Um, I was out with some friends camping one night, and uh, one of the guys with us, he always kind of dabbled in and kind of joked around with the dark side, and we never really believed him much. So we had a fire going in an old creek bed down near the uh, Shawnee National Forest. The guy starts encanting some stuff, or whatever you call it, you know, saying some things. And he was holding a stick in the middle of the fire, and all of a sudden the flames started jumping up. And we all got a little nervous at that point, you know. And at that at that time, I was always, you know, everything I heard, it's like, well, you got to prove it to me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he did this for quite a while, you know, and he'd say certain things, and the flame would change different colors, and it would jump higher and higher. 
Well, one of the other guys in our group, he got a little scared, and finally we stopped everything and decided, all right, we're going to go back over to our regular campsite. Well, as we got ready to leave, we were going through the forest, and we heard something, turned around and looked, and I caught something out of the side of my eye, and it kind of looked like kind of like a gray apparition of some sort. And everybody else kind of stopped, and nobody said anything. Well, the next day, we were all talking about this, and before I had even said what I had seen, two other guys said they saw the same thing. It kind of looked like an old, possibly a Confederate soldier or something. Hmm. And uh, that kind of got us a little nervous. We went back up to this old creek bed, and where we had the fire built, it was on top of slabs of rock at the bottom of this, like I said, this old creek bed. And where he had drawn this fire out, and he had made a pentagram, Every single point in that pentagram was burned about an inch deep into the stone. <laughs> really? Now, this is, it gets a little weirder. We're looking around, and we all of a sudden we see these weird footprints coming out of what, where the fire was heading kind of, I guess the direction would have been heading kind of northwest. And we see a series of them. And we start walking along. There's like eight feet between each one. The bottom half of this print was cloven. The top half of it was almost in a three prongs on top of a rectangle, almost like a crown. So you set something horrible loose on the world. Well, I didn't. <laughs> you I were part of it. That. You I, were part of it, sir. I know, and I, I've always wondered about that. Well, this guy that did this, within six months, he was actually, he was from around, I guess, around the Cleveland area. He died of a mysterious death. I, myself, the night that happened... Um, we had went up to go get some more supplies and things, and out of nowhere, I was about five feet away from everybody else in a well-lit parking lot. It felt like something, like a linebacker just came behind me and shoved me. And I flew probably about four or five feet. Everybody's kind of looking at me, and a couple guys were looking right at me when it happened. They couldn't believe what happened, and at first I thought one of them did it to me. And I had a sprained ankle. Weird things happened to this whole group over the next... No, it was probably your... Cloven-footed friend that shoved you. <laughs> Interesting. This world is full of so many things that we just don't understand. But now, perhaps, we do understand one of the things that actually did happen. How big a story is this? Uh, does it get any bigger? Short of the second coming? I don't think so. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Good morning. Oh, good. Is this coast to coast? It is, yes. Yeah. All right. Good deal. Um, I have. I would like to. I have a story I'd like to um, tell on the air. Is this no. George tonight? No, this is not George. I'm on the air right now. You are, yes. Oh, okay. Um, when I was um, 13 years old, approximately. Uh, two, me and uh, two of my buddies, we were uh, going down 28, uh, there's a highway uh, out in the country, and um, uh, there was an old road. Where? Uh, what state? I mean, where? where, where? In, in Ohio, Milford, Ohio. Okay. It was a country town back then, and going across, um, oh, like a little gravel road, it was about three miles long, went from 28 to 50. Um, we had riding our bikes, and there was a bunch of police cars there that had stopped, and we had thought that there was a wreck uh, down um, down that road, Cook Road. And um, so they wouldn't let us down there. They stopped us. So we came back up, parked our bikes. We went through the woods. 
And when we got through the woods, um, this was really bizarre. It looked like something had landed, and the trees were breaking down and breaking off. And there was probably like a 50, 60-yard uh, round radius where it was the um, the grass was flat, and it was burned and kind of twisted a little so bit. So something had landed. Something had landed. And... Um, then that they seen us again, and they grabbed us. And uh, there was this time there was a, there was police officers. They meaning the police. Yeah, the police officers and some guys in some suits. And they took us to the road, and they threatened us if we ever came if they came back and caught us again, they would take us to our parents. But uh, I seen it. I mean, I we actually seen it. These were some friends of mine. You, you what you saw was the area where it landed, right? You didn't actually see the craft. No, there was that was the thing. There was nothing there. And they had the road blocked off. So apparently what it had ever had crashed or had landed, it was gone. It, it, had take, it was gone. There was nothing there. I mean, I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, it, it was at that point gone. Well, there's a million stories in the night like that one and sightings. But rarely do we get anything as solid as Roswell. And with... Tonight's news, in my mind, it locks it up. And it may well, in a way, in a sense, it may verify a lot of these other stories, like the one you just heard, and sightings of craft and things that don't belong on Earth. It kind of underscores a lot of those, doesn't it? I really do wonder where they came from. I wonder who they are, and I'm... I wonder what they want with us. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm all right, sir. I uh, really love your show. Thank um, you. I just wanted to comment on the uh, Roswell incident. Uh, Please, yes. I used to uh, work uh, with uh, classified material with the uh, Air Force and the Army, mm-hmm. and this is uh, something that I've never heard anybody question. But uh, when they were confronted with the the story that uh, something had crashed and people had seen this, the Air Force, or I guess back then it would have been the Army, they they never would have divulged a top-secret operation such as Mogul to the general public, uh, even as a diversion. They would never release that information at all. Well, it wasn't released then. It was released uh, much later. Uh, Mogul was, you may recall, uh, Mogul was the cover story that replaced the cover story of the balloon. Right, right. But uh, didn't at the time they mention that there was a weather balloon? Yeah, at the time. Yes, that's right. Uh, At the time, it was... Well, they first said, we've got a disc, flying saucer. Then within 24 hours, it was a weather balloon. And then years later, the ultimate insult uh, came when they, uh, do you remember that Air Force thing where they, they showed us the dummies that were dropped? <laughs> oh, God, it was a mess. It was just absolutely a laughable mess. And that came with the mogul story and, the, you know, the cover-up that replaced the cover-up story. 
I'm sorry. Uh, I believe what I read to you tonight. I believe this man who kept his mouth shut all his life and left the document to be opened only at his death. I believe him. Uh, Wildcard Line, you are on the air. Hello. Hey, Art. Yes, sir. Uh, are we only quoting on the um, Roswell incident? You have something to quote, or you mean talking about? No, in reference to, yes. Yeah, no, whatever you want. Oh, great. I wish you'd have a best of night. I don't know how the format would work on the radio, but you've had some really terrific shows. With uh, The first one with Bonnie Crystal was uh, fabulous. Um, uh, you were originally going to speak to her about her caver explorations and discovered she was a great inventor and all this. Oh, yes. Well, they, they do run best of uh, for, you know, streaming purposes. Yeah, well, kind of like a recap. Uh, you've actually done a lot of, uh, you've done a great summary on quantum mechanics and mm-hmm. relativity. Uh, you, when you, that big hype on the ginger uh, you had a detective on there who worked, I think, for a current affair, and he was describing how all these millionaire investors were in there, and you quickly went to how, uh, well, how did you get in here? Mm-hmm. And he, he commented on how his friend always tries this and gets whisked in a limousine, but he was able at the airport to shake the president's hand. And um, Yeah, there have been a lot of, uh, thank you, there have been a lot of very good programs, and they do, of course, a best of for streaming. Uh, I suppose you could put together a show with, you know, which would encompass years and years and years uh, of a lot of it was uh, breaking and very interesting news. You could do that. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hi. Yes. Hi. Uh, Art Bale? Yes. Uh, Hello, this is Edna P. Pringle. Oh, my God. Edna Pringle. I I just wanted to tell you that I'm very sorry for those nasty things I wrote to you, and uh, I was under the influence of J.C., and I was not thinking clearly. Yes, well, uh, J.C., um, let's see, I spoke with him, uh, oh, about a week ago, and he was under the impression that very shortly you were going to be back at the compound with him. No, I have to tell you that I've been a bit worried because... I I have heard that he was trying to track me down. Oh and, yes. And I I think I saw a friend of his in the town I'm staying. And um, but uh, you know I just wanted to ask you also. Um, it's an honor speaking with you. But um, would you accept my apology? Well, of course I would. Yes, you you wrote some. Uh, yes. Disturbing things. Um, uh, to me, but I but but I understand you were under under the influence of of, of JC, of course. Yes, and and um, I have some good friends here in Woodstock, New York, who are looking out for me. But um, I was wondering um, that compound that you and George Nori live at and pay rump. I was wondering if no, 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 no. George Nori does not live here. Oh, oh, JC told me you you had a compound. You and George Nori there. Well, he's wrong. Oh, um, um, well, I was wondering, you know, maybe I could stay at your compound. I could take care of your little baby. (laughs) Well, thanks for the offer, uh, Edna. But uh, if I were you, I think I'd keep your head down because, uh, you know, J.C.'s out there and he's looking for you hard. Yes, I know. 
Uh-huh. And, and I wanted to tell you that I do believe, in answer to your question, I, I believed about that before this, this, this came out on this fellow who died. Oh, you mean uh, Roswell? Yes. And so even Edna uh, believes, in, uh, believes now that this is the real McCoy. And I, I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't have let you say where you are. I know J.C. really is looking very, very hard for you, Edna. So now he knows the town you're in if you told the truth. Uh, Wildcard line, you're on the air. Going once, going twice, gone. Uh, let's go to this wild card line. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Hi. Could, could you clear up one thing for me? I would appreciate it. You're an old Air Force person. That's right. And I've listened and loved you for years. But it sure sounds like any time you personally are talking about a UFO, that you're insinuating that it's otherworldly. Is well, that right or wrong? Well, uh, wrong. Okay. A UFO is an unidentified flying object. It doesn't mean it's extraterrestrial. It means it's an object in the air and it's not identified. Okay, I just wondered if that's what you're coming to the conclusion, because you've talked about triangles, and it seems to me that, uh, that the way you talk about just UFOs, I love your show, is that... Uh, uh, you believe them to be otherworldly, but I'm not putting words in your mouth if that's what it well, is. Well, good, don't, because that's not true. I just, I thought I just clarified it for you. Uh, let me do it again. Uh, an no, object. No, you... uh, okay. I beg your pardon? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, but all right. An object in the air that is not identified is a UFO. Uh, however, for example, with respect to what we're talking about tonight, we're talking about a man who, following his death, uh, right. told the story of what happened at Roswell. Now, he saw a flying saucer. He saw a disc. He also saw bodies, non-human bodies. What does that sound like to you? Well, I don't know about the bodies, but the discs, the U.S. Air Force has had discs. Uh, in, in 19... Really? Not then. Well, I don't know about... Well, how do you know, really? I 60 mean, years ago. Be, pardon? That was 60 years ago now, sir. Yeah, I know, but uh, you are you telling me you, you don't really know, Art? Nobody really knows. Well, I'm just telling you what is in the document that this man left to be open now, which has been opened uh, following his death. Okay, well, I just, uh, you cleared it for me. Thank you very much, and I'll you, stick with you. You have a great night. Hey, you're very welcome. No, even the uh, the giant triangle I saw... I can't tell you that it was from elsewhere. In fact, I think that uh, in every instance that I have described it, although I have said clearly and will say again that it uh, appeared to be defying gravity, it appeared to be of large mass. It could have been some sort of experimental lighter than aircraft uh, something. And I think I've clearly stated uh, on each occasion that I've discussed it that I have no real way of knowing where it came from. But in the case of Roswell, we're talking about a disc, flying saucer, seen on the ground, crashed. We're talking about biological entities that were small and non-human. And again, we're talking about the man who was the uh, public relations officer for the base way back in 1947, who now, following his death, has left a document saying... 
that he saw all of this. To me, that has meaning. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I'm Art Bell. Indeed, here I am. Tom Carey has been a mutual UFO network, a MUFON state director in southeastern Pennsylvania, a special investigator for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, as well as a member of the CUFOS, C-U-F-O-S, Board of Directors. Tom began investigating aspects of the Roswell incident in 1991 for the Roswell investigative team of Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt. And since 98, has teamed exclusively with Don Schmidt to continue a proactive investigation. Tom has authored, or co-authored, over 30 published articles about the Roswell events of 1947, and has contributed to a number of books on the subject as well. He appeared as a guest on many radio and television shows throughout the country. This will be his first on coast, and has contributed to a number of Roswell-related documents on screen and behind the scenes. Most recently, Tom was a consultant and interviewee with Don Schmidt on the Sci-Fi Channel documentary, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence, 2002, and the History Channel's Conspiracy Theory, Roswell 2005, Travel Channel's Weird America, Roswell 2005, and the Sci-Fi Channel's Sci-Fi Investigates, Roswell 2006. In a moment, Tom Carey. Tom Carey, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Good morning, Art. Good to be with you. Great to have you. Um, now, listen, be aware, as you know, or I should inform the audience, I called you uh, when I bumped into this uh, news.com.au uh, news story breaking uh, dated July 1st. Now, I called you earlier in the evening, and I said, oh, my God, this is pretty good timing. And you said, well, it was the last chapter in my book. I read it to the audience. Not the chapter in your book, but the news, news.com.au story uh, in the first hour, because I think it is really, really important. Uh, it's going to kind of jump ahead in terms of our interview, and I understand that, but uh, my God, uh, what a story. Well, we, uh, we thought it was the, uh, the sealed statement was something that, uh, Walter Hout wanted to do in, 19, in I'm sorry in 2002. All right, he, that's when he actually wrote it. Yes. Okay. Up until that point, he had uh, more or less said the same story over and over again, the same account of his involvement in the Roswell incident, namely that of the base public information officer who distributed the famous press release to the news media in Roswell. And uh, over the years, uh, I knew Walter for ever since my first trip in, uh, to Roswell in 1994, I think it was. And uh, a finer gentleman you could never hope to meet. All right. Well, again, he was, of course, the... Uh public relations officer at the base in 1947. Now, yes. in in the years uh, prior to his passing, what, just for the record, what was his official story? What did he tell everybody? His official story was that he was in his office on uh, Tuesday, 
July the 8th, 1947, when he received a phone call from the base commander, the commander of the 509th Bomb Group, William Blanchard, that uh, Blanchard wanted him to take down a statement that he was going to dictate to him, announcing the capture of a flying saucer, as they were called in those days. And uh, so he took the statement down. Uh, I think it began the many rumors concerning the flying saucer, etc., are true, and uh, it went on for a bit. So uh, around noontime, First Lieutenant Hout went around to the four news media, two radio stations, two newspapers in Roswell with the news release, press release. Mm-hmm. And uh, went back to his desk, and that was the end of his involvement, according to his story. And that's what he maintained the whole time he was alive since the incident. Yes. Occasionally he would, uh, you know, say something additionally, like, I believe it was a UFO, just don't ask me why. Things like that. But if you knew Walter and if you knew people, you knew, at least in my opinion, here was a man who was carrying a secret that he was not divulging. Whenever we would ask him questions, uh, further questions about Roswell, this was before the sealed statement, mm-hmm. he would say, uh, in addition to that, you know, his story was uh, whenever he was sort of pushed into a corner, he would say, I, I just can't remember. It was too long ago. Mm. So things he didn't want to answer, that that was his standard response. How old but, was he when he passed? I think he was like 80, early 80s. Early I don't know 80s, exactly okay. which, but he was in the early, is in our early 80s. Okay. But uh, when he crafted the sealed statement he was in good health and uh he thought it was he wanted to leave a legacy of truth now also we we talked you know why why would he, he do this someone who was blanchard's right hand man how could he not know more than what he was saying I mean, he had to know. He was Blanchard's right-hand man. Blanchard knew everything. And uh, for years and years, it was, well, that's that's all I all I know. And, and we would say, well, weren't you at the least bit curious? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when he would say, well, geez, I, I you know, I can't remember now, but <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's all that I know. All right, so, so you knew him. Tell me about him. What kind of man was he? You said he was a fine man. Well, he was, he was just a fine gentleman. He was the type of person that if you organized a group of any sort, he was the one you would want to elect president. Everybody liked him, uh, smiled all the time, and he just had that demeanor. He was about six foot three, six foot four, tall man that just had a presence about him. And uh, the other thing was that uh, Blanchard uh, really liked uh, Walter Hout. And uh, Hout could have followed Blanchard all the way to uh, the Pentagon, and uh, certainly at a minimum have be, you know, been a colonel. 
But, uh, you know, perhaps he could have got a star or two because uh, Blanchard was earmarked for the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force and uh, uh, being the right-hand man of a uh, potential chief of staff, you would just go right up the line yourself. So that was also curious to us as to why he would not uh, follow Blanchard and choose to remain in Roswell. How how long uh, was Walter Hout uh, in the military service? I think he uh, joined in 1942 or thereabouts, mm-hmm. and he got out, I think it was 1948. Okay. He was so. a bombardier in World War II, B-29s, and uh, he and Blanchard uh, hooked up at uh, Roswell. And I think uh, Hout was also in that uh, famous Operation Crossroads in 1946, in some capacity, and in, in, uh, in which Blanchard was the already the commander of the 509th Bomb Group. So he was probably, um, it was what, five years prior to his death, right? 2002, yeah. you said he wrote this? December of uh, 2002. Did, uh, who was aware of the fact that uh, he wrote this? His family, uh, my co-author Don Schmidt, and myself. So he wrote he wrote this and put it where? Well, I don't know uh if he kept it in a uh you know, a empty box of white owls or uh, <laughs> uh or a uh, safe, I don't I don't know, but certainly uh with the uh, family. Mm-hmm. Did he ever uh, make any reference uh to you Tom that uh he had signed uh, some sort of uh a security, uh, you know, promise, or that he had ever been in any way threatened? Not threatened. Uh, I don't think Walter Hout is the kind of person you threaten. Uh, I, I think he would really tell you where to go, irregardless of the rank. But uh, we do know this, that... Uh, William Blanchard, his commanding officer, and he had a very close relationship, also, almost like father-son, uh, uncle, uh, nephew, something like that. A very good relationship. And um, we had bandied it about, and we turned out to be right, that uh, he had promised Butch, uh, uh, Blanchard's uh, nickname, uh, that he would never talk about it. And uh, Blanchard had asked him, and he promised that he would uh, not talk about the Roswell incident. So he was keeping the secret for Butch all of these years. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end, uh, before before he checked out, he did want to have a, a record of the truth about what went down at Roswell in 1947, and the sealed statement was his vehicle to give the truth, but also not tell it during his life. So he would keep the uh, uh, promise that he made to Butch. Understood. Well, when the Air Force uh, had their now infamous, it was uh, dummies that were dropped and tried to you know, the mogul and then the the whole mogul business. If that had been the real cover story, uh, certainly at that point, 
he would have felt free to discuss any aspect of, of Roswell because uh, the Air Force themselves were supposedly going public saying, okay, finally, here is the real, we can finally now tell you the, the real truth about what happened at Roswell. It was a secret uh, yeah, project. So that, uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, one of the uh, pilots from uh, Roswell in 1947, Pappy Henderson, uh, when he was in the you know, he was uh, sworn to secrecy. Uh, he was in a supermarket in 1980 or 81, somewhere in there, and he saw a, on one of the tabloids uh, a uh, story about uh, the Roswell incident, and he told his wife, Sappho, well, I guess I can tell you the story now. I see that the that it's out. Yes. So uh, if Mogul had been the explanation uh uh, like you say, I would have thought that, uh, you know, he would feel that, okay, it's okay to, to talk now. Makes, sure. Makes sense to me. Sure. Um, so you don't know where this It was a sworn affidavit, however. Uh, were you part of, I mean, how did you know that he was doing that? Did he tell you uh, and tell the world or his wife or, you know, whoever? Well, well no, the, the, he told his family, of course. And uh, his daughter, Julie, is the uh, director of the UFO Museum in Roswell, and Don Schmidt is on the board of directors. And we are good friends, so it was uh, – and and Don and I go down to Roswell several times a year to uh, conduct our research. So uh, uh, we were pretty good friends with the family, so I I think it's natural that we, we would know. But he didn't, uh, in other words, even those close to him did not know. They did not know the true, his true involvement, his true knowledge of the incident until the sealed statement was opened. Uh, I believe it, well, he passed last year, so it was. It would be late last year that it was opened. Mm-hmm. They did not know the, his involvement. Uh, the extent of his involvement beyond the press release until that sealed statement uh, was opened. I would think, uh, Tom, that this would be so serious, what we're discussing right now, that it would almost require some sort of response from the military or from somebody. Well, we hear... uh, uh, just uh, tangentially, that uh, you know, the Air Force has already uh, under their belt four explanations to Roswell: the uh, original that it was a flying saucer, mm-hmm. the second one was that it was a weather balloon, the third one was that it was a mogul balloon, and the fourth mm-hmm. one has to do with the crash test dummies. So their next explanation will be their fifth, and I'm sure they really mean it this time. <laughs> Do you think there will be a fifth? No. In other words, you, you do not? No. No. Uh, so you think they will simply not respond in any way to this? If they respond, they will stand by their their what they've already got out there. Because uh, the, the, the fourth explanation, they the, the reporters in the room were howling with laughter, so I don't know if they want to go through that again. And uh, if you keep ch- if you keep changing your explanations at some point. <laughs> People don't believe you anymore. Oh, yeah, so well, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't think they will. I've got to tell you, Tom. Uh, this virtually cinches it for me. I mean, I had a big question mark uh, over Roswell all my life, but this really does cinch it for me. It honestly does. People, they just don't. You know, look, I, I said it to the audience in the first hour, and I'll say it to you now. If he had wanted to make something of this, he was in a position where he could have written books, made a lot of money, done any TV and radio appearance he wished to do, and uh, really just done, he could have done anything he wanted while he was alive with this. So Absolutely. the fact that he didn't and and wrote this document, the sworn affidavit, and, and only to be opened after he was dead, it really does cinch it for me, Tom. What about you? Well, all right, I was I was convinced uh, before the sealed statement. Uh, for me, the sealed statement is sort of the icing on the cake because I I already had come to the conclusion of uh, what went down at Roswell because okay. because of our investigation, which is ongoing. Okay, and I I would like to talk about that. In other words, uh, yes, you were convinced before this. Well, I wasn't, but. I'd be very interested in hearing what did it for you. I know you've been investigating for years, so maybe you can sort of, I don't know, lead us through your investigation and get to what actually cinched it for you prior to this. Okay. Um, the uh, Let's start here. How, how did you even get interested in the whole subject? That's an interesting question. It was uh, in 1991. I was uh, I was a you know a reading member of the uh, QFOS, the Center for UFO Studies. I received their uh, quarterly magazine, and there was an investigative team in there of uh, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt who were publishing articles about the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. Now I had read the Roswell incident book when it came out in 1980 and that uh, as far as my interest in UFOs that sort of sensed it for me uh, as to my real focus was the uh, crash saucer phenomenon and uh, it seemed to me that the Randall and Schmidt had a uh, investigation going on which I just found fascinating and one of the aspects of the investigation actually goes back to the original book, The Roswell Incident, about these archaeologists that uh, stumbled upon the crashed saucer and uh, some crew members lying about. Of course, that was the old Barney Barnett story at that point, uh, but the involvement of the archaeologists is what interested me because of my background in anthropology and archaeology. And the fact that these archaeologists allegedly came from the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, myself living near Philadelphia, I thought, well, geez, this ought to be a slam dunk for me to go down to the university and find out who they were. All right. Uh, hold it right there, Tom. Tom Carey is my guest. He's a first-time guest on Coast, but a long-time investigator of the Roswell case. And we have big new news on Roswell tonight. We'll be right back. Here I am. All right, everybody. It's breaking everywhere now. At this hour, uh, we're collecting stories from This is London, 
www.ingland.co.uk. So from England, I'm seeing yet another story I just found. Daily Mail in London also just broke the story. So at this hour, it's breaking worldwide. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Lieutenant Walter Hout. And it's funny the way news stories break, isn't it? Actually, Tom got it in the last chapter of his book, and we'll find out the timing on that uh, here shortly. But this is just breaking now around the world. It's one of those stories that once it breaks in one place, it's going to break everywhere. And thank goodness the timing is absolutely perfect for this night and my guest. Tom Carey, the subject Roswell, breaking news. We'll be right back. Uh, Tom, we've got to come back to it for a moment here because it's breaking in the mainstream press uh, very rapidly. I've now got uh, two stories from Great Britain, which uh, has always just bugged the hell out of me. The fact that I've got to get important news about things that occur here in the U.S. from uh, from other nations, uh, particularly from uh, Great Britain and, of course, uh, Australia. Now, Tom... Uh, why do you think this is at virtually, as we're speaking, at this hour, uh, beginning to break so hard in the mainstream press? That's a good question, Art. Uh, <laughs> it is. When our, when our book came out, I, I tried to interest our local media here in Philadelphia about the uh, not only the 60th anniversary that was that's approaching, but also our book and the fact that there was a local angle, meaning me, uh, that was involved in the case, and uh, so far they've shown no interest. But, but apparently across the world, uh, in Australia and Great Britain, uh, they have a different attitude. Now, I think, I'm, I'm guessing this is just speculation as to why it's breaking now, is that uh, last week, Bill Burns from the uh, from UFO, Mag- the publisher of UFO Magazine, held a press conference in New York City announcing the sealed statement of Walter Hout. And, of course, he gave uh, the source of the statement uh, as our book. But the fact that he held it in New York City, uh, perhaps there were other newsmen there from uh, wherever. And uh, the Internet being what it is, you know how how word gets around uh, much faster these days than... uh, when the first uh, Roswell book came out. So I'm guessing that's how it, how it, how it's happened. Well, this is only 10, it's not really related. Uh, but you know, you remember the Phoenix lights? Yes. I covered that. I was on the air the night that happened. I took call after call, after call, after call witnesses, people who were frantic, um, saw the Phoenix lights, saw the craft, swore to me. They, they had seen a solid craft and so forth and so on. The whole night, that's all we did was take calls. Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. Then for three months, uh, Tom, it went deader than a doornail. Not a word. And then like somebody threw a switch, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, all of them were on the Phoenix lights like it had happened hours ago. It's like somebody threw a switch. It's like somebody has to take the lead, I presume, and... and Report it, and then the others will follow. But uh, maybe sometimes no one wants to take that. (laughs) But it's it's happening again, right before our eyes, right now. And so... That's good to hear from our perspective. Well, Uh, I guess so. I guess so. Tell me, 
how you managed to get it in your book. Your book came out how long ago? We finished it in December, and it came out uh, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. And when did you get the information on the sealed statement into the book as the last chapter? December. December? Yes. So uh, <laughs> it was in the manuscript. We finished the manuscript in December, sent it to the publisher, and uh, it hit the bookstores, uh, most notably Barnes & Noble, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Yes. That's and we're, it, it's, it had an incredible start and it's uh, we're uh, going into our second printing already yes uh-huh. and uh, what kind of reaction have you been getting to that last chapter well uh don and i have been getting uh, a lot of emails and uh all of them are outstanding i mean the feedback has been outstanding but what's interesting is that uh while the media seems to have latched on to the sealed statement, the, the emails that we're getting are, are more just about the, the wealth of information, the wealth of new information in the book. Mm-hmm. The uh, sealed statement we, we put in there to be the crown jewel of the book and uh, placing it last for uh, best uh, effect. But, well, uh, you, you understand, don't you, why it's such a big deal? I mean, oh, absolutely. A man who could have made a lot of money, who could have uh, been famous, could have virtually done anything he wanted to do with that information when he was alive, to have written it uh, as, an affidavit, as an affidavit and uh, one only to be opened on his death, uh, it's a big story. I'm glad the press now is recognizing it as such, and I suppose eventually we're going to see something in the American media, virtually any minute. <laughs> we we hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 come back for a moment. Uh, even though this certainly qualifies as breaking news, let's come back to. I guess what what got you or what convinced you, and that's that's a strong word. Convinced convinced you about Roswell in the first place. Well, uh. I liked the first book, the 1980, uh, the Roswell incident, but it was the Randall Schmidt book of 1991, UFO Crash at Roswell, that really, for me, got me thinking, wow, this is, because they, they, they had so much new information in it. I thought, wow, here's, uh, here's a lot of work done, and boy, did they uncover a lot of new information about the case, uh, testimony and uh, what have you, and I said, boy... There's really something to this. Now, uh, Don and I teamed up in 1998. Now, this is a year after the the, the hoopla from the 1997 50th anniversary, where yeah. you know the media really uh, took to the case, and uh, most of the former investigators. Uh, I feel packed it in at that point, 1997. Uh, before the show, I looked. I looked through my library here at the at the Roswell books that I had. Most of them were written in 1997, ten years ago. So Don and I wanted to continue a proactive. I emphasize the word proactive investigation of the case, meaning that. We're not going to sit around and wait for leads to plop in our laps. We're going to go out there and shake the tree 
and see what we can find. We didn't know what we would find, but there were still a number of witnesses that hadn't been talked to, many of them, and uh, enough out there that it made it worthwhile for us to continue. And the continuing wealth of information from witness testimony, and believe me, they're not talking about a weather balloon or a high-altitude balloon that they are not, is uh, what sort of put the nail in the coffin for me of any other explanation other than uh, a UFO crashed. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think you know for sure? Um, gosh, I say for sure. I mean, you, you talk to witnesses. What kind of things did they tell you? Well, the... Uh, the witnesses that we talk to, they don't know the whole story. They only know their little piece of it, sure. what they what they saw, what somebody told them, uh, in some cases what they handled. And it's our job to put the little pieces of the puzzle into a framework that makes sense. And that's that's the way we look at it. Now, we've uh, we found new witnesses who uh, have seen the bodies. A number of them say that one was alive. Uh, we believe there were two body sites, one up on the Foster Ranch where Mac Brazel uh, uh, discovered all of that wreckage in his uh, sheep pasture. There's right. a site two miles from there where Mac found something else, which we believe were uh, three bodies. Uh, there's another body site 40 miles north of Roswell. God. In in uh, Chavez County, where the remainder of the craft that blew up over Brazel's pasture uh, came to rest, uh, we believe it was an escape pod or an escape capsule or or some sort of interior protective device uh, in case of uh, some malfunction, and it uh, came to rest uh, north of town with uh, uh, four four uh, occupants and one which was alive. Wow. That's what's always bothered me. On the ranch, I never felt, although obviously I wasn't there and I didn't see how much debris there was, but, you know, they discussed uh, the material that would bend but wouldn't burn or would, couldn't be torn or couldn't, couldn't uh, be torn or whatever. Um, and I, I always thought, well, that's interesting, but it's, we're not talking about a craft here. And now we're talking about other crash sites. So, in other words, only part of this came down on the farm and the rest of it came down elsewhere, yes? Yes, exactly. And along the way, three uh, occupants were blown out uh, and landed uh, two and a half miles from the original uh, debris field site. So we have, we're talking about seven occupants, one of, one of which was alive, at least for a period of time. Uh, a sheep pasture, uh, maybe a mile long and a couple hundred feet wide, just covered with uh, wreckage in small pieces, mm-hmm. and an egg-shaped pod or an escape capsule of some sort that uh, continued on for another few miles and came to rest about 40 miles north of town. Tom, how uh, detailed a description of the occupants do we have? What, what, what is the best? They're, uh, they're, all, they're all the same. They're, They're all the same. Yes, the uh, the descriptions we're getting are very similar. How many witnesses are we talking about? When you say they're all the same, how many witnesses contributed descriptions that match? Oh, geez. Uh, I'd have to sit down. I mean, it's like uh, 
over 10, maybe tw- 20. So I'd, I'd have to sit down and just add them up. 10 to 20, somewhere in there. That's a lot of people. Yes. All right. Uh, can you give me your best shot at uh, describing what they describe, please? Yes. Uh, th- three and a half to four feet tall, maybe 40 pounds. Uh, very frail, but the overwhelming, the overriding feature is the large head. Everyone describes a large, hairless head, shaped like an inverted pear or an inverted egg, uh, slightly slanted eyes, not like these uh, big uh, black uh, ovals that you see, you know, in the abduction. In the grays, uh, the supposed grays, right? Yeah, not like that. Just slightly uh, larger than ours, but slightly slanted. One witness described them as... He described them as tear-shaped, like mm-hmm. tears, you know, and you can imagine, uh, just picture that. Uh, no nose, just two two little holes in the front of the head for nostrils, uh, uh, two holes for ears, no uh, earlobe, no fleshy part of the ear, huh. a slit about one inch to one and a half inches uh, where the mouth would be, a mouth that doesn't go anywhere, it's just made up of cartilage and a uh, little uh, orifice in there, but it doesn't lead to a uh, uh, digestive system. So uh, um, what am I leaving out? Oh, the color. Oh, arms that go below the knees. Uh, the color is variously reported as mostly grayish, but with tints of uh, either green, blue, orange, yellow, and we think that that has to do with the state of uh, decay or preservation and uh, perhaps lighting. But uh, several military witnesses um, uh, described, uh, like Pappy Henderson described them as uh, reminding him of Casper the Ghost, the old uh, cartoon character. A friendly Ghost, yeah. Yes. Um, Another witness, uh, uh, we believe Jesse Marcel saw the bodies. That's another new uh uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., that's another uh, conclusion of our book, is that uh, Jesse Marcel saw them at some point. Well, if if so, uh, did he describe that to his son? Because I've interviewed on a number of occasions his we, son, and he never... No, we got, we got the information from a third party, and uh-huh. uh, the information was that Jesse told him that they reminded him of white rubbery figures. Now, to me, that means some something like either the Pillsbury Doughboy or uh, the Michelin Man. Uh, but white rubbery figures. And uh, someone else. Uh, oh, another witness uh, uh, by the name of uh, Marion Magruder, uh, uh, an Air Force pilot. Uh, night fighter pilot in World War II described them. Uh, he saw them at uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base in late July 1947 with the Air War College class. He just just described them as squiggly. So uh, <laughs> those are some of the descriptions. But they uh, three and a half to four feet tall uh, is uh, pretty much uh, uh, described by everybody. Okay, what about the one that was still alive? What do we know about that one, if anything? That one, we have, how long it lasted or how long it lived is a matter of conjecture. We have uh, someone who said that uh, there's there's been a story around for years that it uh, 
that it uh, was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base until 1952, uh, at which time it expired. Uh, if the World War II pilot uh, Mary Magruder is to be believed, he saw it that uh, late July at Wright Pat. Others uh, seem to feel that it expired soon after it was brought to the base hospital. Well, either way, if, 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 if this is true, then uh, through various means, including autopsy and a lot more, we know an awful lot about these beings. Well, we know, uh, we know what they look like. We know where they were taken. Uh, in fact, one of the witnesses at the site, this is before it was removed to the hospital, uh, his family asked him, uh, well, did it talk to you? Did it speak to you? And he said, yes, but in my head. He, you know, he didn't say anything about mental telepathy or anything like that. He he just said that the being talked to him in his head and that, that it told him not to worry, that uh, it was all right, that there was nothing that he could do, that, uh, you know, he was he he was accepting his fate, something oh like that. God. Um, uh, in other words, he, he knew he was going to die. Well, that th that he w wouldn't get back to uh, where he came from, that right. he was more or less stuck, and but that he accepted it and not to worry. Um, how much uh, how much credence uh, do you give to this report? Well, it was uh, told by a public official in Roswell who was at the site. And uh, we got it. Uh, he was he was gone by the time that uh, the investigators came around, and uh, we got it from a family member, and uh, whom we believe. So uh, we think the credibility of the story is is high. He he had no reason to make this up. He didn't make any money off of it, and it was told to the family at the time. Not uh, not after the books came out, but it was told in 1947. The family was severely threatened with their lives oh. never to speak of this. And uh, we got the story uh, in the 90s, a few years ago. By the way, folks, um, this is breaking in a sense. So if you want to read about it, coasttocoastam.com. We've got it up there now. Just scroll down on the front page, Hot Stories for Saturday, June 30th. Uh, Roswell Officer's Deathbed Admission is the title of the story. This one from uh, thisislondon.co.uk. So this one's coming from uh, Great Britain, and we've uh, managed to get it up there. I, I would like to report that they're getting their story from our book, Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. Got it. Um, clearly, you had it uh, ahead of seemingly uh, everybody else. Uh, was there anybody at all, Tom, to your knowledge, that uh, no. broke the story ahead of your book? No, because there were there were only two copies of the sealed statement: uh, one that the family had, and one that our we had a copy. Uh, our investigation had so no, no I one else. Just, had I love the way the world's press operates. I just absolutely love it, Tom. Hold tight. We're a breaking news evening. Uh, Underway. Tom Carey is my guest. The subject is Roswell, but the news for us is brand new. 
All right, I've just been sent something that I'd like to authenticate. Uh, Tom, if you're there, I've got a quick question for you. Uh, if you were to hear the affidavit of Walter G. Hout, uh, would you uh, be able to authenticate it? If I would hear it? Yeah, if you would hear it, would you be able to uh, tell me if it was authentic? Well, uh, I have a copy in my book. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you then to hold on. In a moment, we'll come back, and I'm going to read it. And you can tell me if it's word for word correct or not. We'll be right back. I want to thank uh, Doug, who is an amateur radio operator, for sending me the following. Um, here it comes, folks. 2002 sealed affidavit of Walter G. Hout. Date, December 26, 2002. Witness, Chris, and then it's X'd out. Notary, uh, Beverly, and I don't want to read the last name. I'll hold that back. Here it comes. One, my name is Walter G. Hout. Two, I was born on June 2nd, 1922. Three, my address is 1405 7th Street, Roswell, New Mexico, 88203. Four, I am retired. Five, in July 1947, I was stationed at the Roswell Army Air Base in Roswell, New Mexico, serving as the base public information officer. I had spent the 4th of July weekend, Saturday the 5th, and Sunday the 6th at my private residence about 10 miles north of the base, which was located south of town. Six, I was aware that someone had reported the remains of a downed vehicle by mid-morning after my return to duty at the base Monday, July 7th. I was aware that Major Jesse A. Marcel, head of intelligence, was sent by the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, to investigate. Seven. By late in the afternoon that same day, I would learn that additional civilian reports came in regarding a second site just north of Roswell. I would spend the better part of the day attending to my regular duties, hearing little, if anything, more. Eight. On Tuesday morning, July 8th, I would attend the regularly scheduled staff meeting at 7.30 a.m. Besides Blanchard, Marcel, CIC, Counterintelligence Corps, Captain Sheridan Cavett, Colonel James, I believe it's I. Hopkins, the operations officer, Lieutenant Ulysses S. Nero, the supply officer, and from Carswell uh, Air Force, uh, AAF, uh, in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, Blanchard's boss, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, and his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas Dubois, J. Dubois, were in attendance. The main topic of discussion was reported by Marcel and Cavett regarding an extensive debris field in Lincoln County, approximately 75 miles northwest of Roswell. A preliminary briefing was provided by Blanchard about the second site, approximately 40 miles north of town. Samples of wreckage were passed around the table. It was unlike any material I have ever seen in my life. Pieces were uh, piece, pieces which resembled metal foil, paper-thin, yet extremely strong, and pieces with unusual markings along their length were handed from man to man, each voicing their opinion. No one was able to identify the crash debris. Nine. One of the main concerns discussed at the meeting was whether we should go public or not with the discovery. General Ramey proposed a plan which I believe originated from his bosses at the Pentagon. 
Attention needed to be diverted from the more important site north of town by acknowledging the other location. Too many civilians were already involved, and the press already was informed. I was not immediately informed how this would be accomplished. 10. At approximately 9.30 a.m., Colonel Blanchard phoned my office and dictated the press release of having in our possession a flying disc coming from a ranch northwest of Roswell and Marcel flying the material to higher headquarters. I was to deliver the news release to radio stations KGFL and KSWS and newspapers The Daily Record and The Morning Dispatch. 11. By the time the news release hit the wire services, my office was inundated with phone calls from around the world. Messages stacked up on my desk. And rather than deal with the media concern, Colonel Blanchard suggested I go home and hide out. That's in quotes. 12. Before leaving the base, Colonel Blanchard took me personally to Building 84, a.k.a. Hangar P, as in Paul 3, a B-29 hangar located on the east side of the tarmac. Upon first approaching the building, I observed that I was under heavy guard both outside and inside. Once inside, I was permitted from a safe distance to observe the object just recovered from north of town. It was approximately 12 to 15 feet in length, not quite as wide, about six feet high, and more of an egg shape. Lighting was poor, but its surface did appear metallic. No windows, portals, wings, tail section, or landing gear were visible. 13. Also, from a distance, I was able to see a couple of bodies under a canvas tarpaulin. Only the heads extended beyond the covering, and I was not able to make out any features. The heads did appear larger than normal, and the contour of the canvas suggested the size of a ten-year-old child. At a later date in Blanchard's office, he would extend his arm about four feet above the floor to indicate the height. Fourteen. I was informed of a temporary morgue set up to accommodate the recovered bodies. Fifteen. I was informed that the wreckage was not hot, in parentheses, radioactive. Sixteen. Upon his return from Fort Worth, Major Marcel described to me taking pieces of the wreckage to General Ramey's office and after returning from a map room, finding the remains of a weather balloon and radar kite substituted while he was out of the room. Marcel was very upset over this situation. We would not discuss it again. 17. I would be allowed to make at least one visit to one of the recovery sites during the military cleanup, I would return to the base with some of the wreckage which I would display in my office. 18. I was aware two separate teams would return to each site months later for periodic searches for any remaining evidence. 19. I am convinced that what I personally observed was some type of craft and its crew from outer space. 20. I have not been paid nor given anything of value to make this statement, and it is the truth to the best of my recollection. Signed, Walter G. Hout, December 26, 2002. Signature of witness by Chris, and then it's X'd out. Uh, Tom, did I read the real thing? Exactly. Word for word. There you got it, folks. (laughs) That's it. 
I'm, I'm glad for some personal reasons that I was able to air this. I, uh, I guess I've been waiting for this uh, for a long time, Tom, and I, I guess when you first saw it, you must have felt the same way. Yes. Uh, of course, I knew, it, I knew of its existence, but when I actually read it, it just, uh, for me, it confirmed everything that I knew or sus- suspected. And uh, Walter being the the kind of person he was, uh, you know, you would not uh, you would not think it was anything other than the truth. I don't. I believe it, word for word, completely. I believe it, Tom. It's as simple as that. We've been visited. Um, wow. Well, certainly, this. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know about other cases, uh, but certainly the Roswell case, to me is a case of uh, that strongly suggests I can I can only use those words strongly suggests as an investigator a case of alien visitation it's the simplest explanation to use Occam's razor uh, that explains the data anything else you have to go far afield to make it fit uh, the wealth of information that we have the only thing that fits is a uh, an extraterrestrial craft and crew. Yeah, obviously. Um, Tom, do you know offhand, um, you know, and I'm, I'm reaching out on the edge now, but uh, during the telepathic communication, you indicated that the creature said it accepted its fate. Yes. Knew it wasn't going to go home. Um, was there anything else about... The beings themselves, uh, the reason, uh, the motivation for the visit, uh, anything at all that was uh, allegedly communicated by this being? Not to this witness. Uh, if if anything like that uh, would have transpired, I would suspect that it was when it was in, uh, not, well, captivity, I don't like to use that word, but when it was... Well, that's uh, probably the right word. <laughs> when it was uh, in the uh, uh, care of our, uh, uh, military at, uh, mm. either at uh, Wright Patterson or, uh, we, you know, perhaps it was, uh, loaned elsewhere. We don't know, but as far as uh, we're concerned, uh, that gets into the area of, uh, speculation because mm-hmm. we're asked that question, uh, occasionally, you know, where, where were they from? Why were they here? Uh, so I'm sorry, again, know, how many, how many bodies total? Uh, I believe there were seven, seven. One, one alive for at least a period of time. With the one being one of the seven? Yes. Okay. Um, do we do we have any idea where these bodies, I mean, obviously we still have them somewhere. Uh, we would have kept these bodies forever and ever. Where, do you have any guesses or knowledge about where well, they might be now? Uh, where they are at as we speak, uh I don't know, but we do know that they were loaned around for study. Loaned around? Yes, uh, to various military bases that had facilities uh, to examine them further. Uh, one being, one that I'm aware of is Randolph Air Force Base uh, near San Antonio, Texas. We had a story from a fellow who was uh, a civilian there uh, back in 1964. That's back when I was in the Air Force. Uh, 
that he saw one there, uh, and Randolph has an aeromedical facility, which is mm-hmm. a, you know, a uh, a uh, medical facility, and he saw one there in 1964. We have reports of. Uh, one or more being in uh, Florida. There's three bases that I know of, uh, Homestead, Eglund, and MacDill. Uh, I don't know uh, which one, but uh, certainly uh, reports there. We know one of the flights went there out of Roswell. Well, we know one of the flights went to Florida. Whether it took uh, one of the uh, uh, bodies, we don't know, but it, we can speculate. All right, Tom, here's here's another Speculative question. This was a long time ago now, sixty years ago now. Tom, do we do we do we think we understand why the government, the military, why our leaders um, felt it necessary for this amount of time to keep this? You know, I mean, it's the biggest story in the world. There is not a bigger story if we've been visited by beings from elsewhere. Why they felt it necessary to keep this secret for 60 years? We, uh, we don't believe there's any logical reason today to keep it, to keep it secret because, uh, because of the, the discoveries of other planets in the uh, universe. That's right. Uh, uh, a small number of which seem to resemble Earth. Uh, there's no good reason today, in in my opinion. Uh, Just the perpetuation of secrecy? In other words, once you've told a lie, then I suppose, you know, we all know how lies go. Uh, You've got to... Keeping it... uh, We believe that's what's keeping the secret today, or the cover-up, is that the perpetuation of a lie. But back in 1947, there were uh, good logical reasons to keep the secret. They, They didn't know... At first, they thought it was Russian... Then they realized it wasn't Russian, and it became, uh, with the dawn of the Cold War, that we have to keep this secret from the Russians. Perhaps we can okay. exploit its technology, and let's let's keep it secret from okay, the Okay, then you know that's understandable. I mean, it really is. Uh, yes. But the Soviet Union is gone. No more. It, no more. <laughs> uh, it seems to me this sealed affidavit blows it all wide open. Now, there's going to have to be some answers. I mean, there's going to have to be a response to this, Tom. You would think. Yeah, this is not like the other evidence, which I admit is compelling. This is really compelling. I mean, again, this man (laughs) was on the inside. He uh, saw a lot. He was the right-hand man of the base commander who was, uh, when he passed away, when uh, when Blanchard passed away at age 50, he was uh, second in command of the entire Air Force. He was vice chief of staff, four stars. He was scheduled to become the, nice, the next uh, chief of staff of the Air Force. Not something you would give to someone who would uh, uh, make a, a uh, boo-boo back in 1947 and, Indeed. and get everybody excited over a weather balloon. That's right. No, that's exactly right. This really blows it open. Uh, all right, you, you, you describe these beings three and a half, four feet tall, 40 pounds, perhaps frail, very frail, um, large heads, uh, slightly slanted eyes, tear-shaped, 
eyes, um, arms that extended down below their knees. I I think it's it's time that our government and our military gave it up. Obviously, they've got these bodies. It's time, Tom. You would think. You would think, especially the, you know, I think people are, are accepting. I mean, it's uh, it's not the days of, uh, you remember the old uh, uh, science fiction movies with the uh, Earth versus the flying saucers, that sort of stuff? Of course, not yes. those days anymore. Although one has to wonder uh, if there is something beyond what you know and, and, and I know now, tonight, that they may have found out that caused them to keep this secret. In other words, more than just building on a lie or holding on to a lie. Maybe well, there's something that they, they found out, some technology that, you know, was back-engineered. I don't know. The only other thing that makes quasi-sense is that uh, in the early 60s, the Brookings Institution oh, yes. uh, conducted a uh, study of the potential effects of Disclosure. contact with an extraterrestrial civilization, and all the potential effects were bad. Uh, uh, destruction of our financial institutions, or collapse of our financial institutions, our religious institutions, and our social institutions. So, Tom, you'll never know. I, I have quoted Brookings uh, to the point of nausea, <laughs> you know, as, as what I believe to be still the reason that we keep this secret. Now... Certainly, we believe it's, a, it's certainly a, still a factor, but the, the other factor is, is, as you said, the perpetuation of a lie. We think it's those two well, today. Maybe. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that religious institutions would crumble. I, I'm sure there'd be some shaking going on, but I don't see them as crumbling, you know, unless the real truth includes... You know, some kind of information, for example, that um, uh, telepathically someone was told that they are our makers. You know, something of that oh, magnitude yeah. could, could certainly cause a collapse. Yeah, something like that. But and you're not aware of anything like that, are you? No, no. The only thing that we're aware of is what the, the one witness uh, was able to uh, convey about what he, what he heard in his head. So, And that was it? That, that, that it, the creature yeah. was aware of its fate. Yes, and he he was trying to to uh, calm, you know, to ease the concern of the uh, you know the person that was out there, the uh, city official. And <laughs> uh, he said, you know, don't worry, there's, you know, there's nothing you can do. I I accept what's happened. And can you name this person? Uh, yes, he was. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, firemen that was out there. One of the and, firemen. Yes, his name was Dan Dwyer. And he has since passed. Yo, oh, yes, yes. He uh, he was long gone by the time the uh, case became known to investigators. So All we right. got the information from his daughter. All right, Tom, hold hold tight from his daughter. Wow. Tom Carey is my guest, and uh, this is, without a doubt, a breaking news night from the high desert and the great American Southwest. I'm Art Bell. Isn't this, isn't this fascinating? I mean, this news has been out. It really has. It's in Tom Carey's book. Apparently, that was the first place, and it's really been sitting there since about, oh, December or so. But 
it didn't break. I mean, it, it may have been recited by one person or another and certainly appeared in the book. And now all of a sudden, click. <laughs> it's fascinating the way our press works. It really is. What a story. Tom Carey is my guest. He'll be right back. I don't know what's true. Maybe it's true that information gets out and, and somehow it's not recognized uh, for the, the level of importance that it carries for some time. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Let me ask you this. Scott sent me a message here from uh, Texas, humble Texas. It says, Art, for the sake of good record, do any medical records exist that show without any doubt that uh, uh, Colonel uh, How was not suffering from some sort of senility or any other medical defect caused by old age on the date of 12-22-2002 when that affidavit was signed? Hello? Yes. The, uh, as a matter of fact, he had just had a medical examination, a physical, at that time, and he was in good health. Uh-huh. So it was at that time they said, let's, let's do a sealed statement now because he's feeling good. He just had, you know, medical, uh, physical, right. good health. And uh, rather than, uh, you know, because if he was in his 80s when he passed away, uh, 2002, he'd be, he'd be in his uh, late 70s, right? Yes, sir. So right. that he said, let's do it now. So, uh, you know, there are medical records, I'm sure, but I, you know, I haven't uh, looked at them. Okay, but you are aware of a physical examination right at the uh, at the point or just yes. prior to the point where he did the affidavit. Yes. I, can I just say something about the, to end that the, the story about the fireman? You certainly may. The uh, there was some uh, uh, when that story first came out, there was a uh, controversy over whether fire trucks went out uh, outside the city limits uh, of Roswell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so about two years ago, uh, I interviewed the sons of the former fire chief. Rue Crispin was the fire chief. He had he had two sons that I interviewed. And what it was, they both said that uh, it wasn't a full-fledged uh, fire wagon that went out. It was a, uh, what they call a tanker, which mm-hmm. is basically a pickup with a large tank on the back filled with water. Right. And uh, that's went out. That's what we went out. Uh, Dan Dwyer was the driver, and uh, his co-pilot was a fellow named Lee Reeves. Uh, Dwyer was dead before we came calling, and uh, Lee Reeves we've never found, and he's presumed to be dead. So a uh, tanker truck went out. Just to you've uh, never found, and he is presumed to be dead. Lee Reeves, yes, I look for it. You know, uh, basically, what we have are our uh, phone books, the internet phone book, and uh, uh, we have not been able to find a uh, Lee Reeves uh, that used to live in Roswell. So, if he's still out there, if he's still alive, I'm sure you'd love to hear from him. <laughs> I sure would. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so we have actually several, three crash sites. Yes, total. We believe they're. Well, one is one is what we call a body site. It wasn't uh, a it wasn't a case where the craft came down and crashed again. It's uh, just that right. uh, it blew up over Brazel's sheep pasture, 
perhaps struck with lightning, perhaps a malfunction of some sort. Actually, I was going to additionally ask, is, is there any possibility, or has it been suggested, Tom, uh, that we may have shot it down? We've, we've heard that uh, question asked. Uh, uh, we have no indication that it was shot down. Uh, it, it, perhaps it had something to do with uh, there were various locations in New Mexico, which was highly secret at that time, that had radar. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thought, the only other thought that it uh, what could have happened is something malfunctioning because of the radar. We we don't know. It's just speculation. But that, that, those are the two possibilities. Of uh, we know that there was a tremendous thunder and lightning storm going on that night. Uh, it's the monsoon season for New Mexico, right? Uh, early July, and uh, we've seen some of that lightning and thunder, and it's scary. Oh, and, it is indeed. Uh, we we have it. We get it here a little bit later. But, oh, yes, uh, Roswell gets pounded by incredible lightning storms. So, it, it, you know, uh, speculating along those lines, uh, you, you know, uh, makes as much sense as anything else. And, uh, of course, the radar is, 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 again, speculation. But no, no, I, no thought that uh, they were tracking it and opened up on it and shot it down. Uh, All right. That, uh, we don't uh, buy that. All right. You, I take it, are quite familiar, I hope, uh, with uh, Lieutenant uh, Corso's, uh, Philip Corso's uh, book and his testimony? Well, it's 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, I, I know the basics of it. Uh, okay. I, I had the uh, fortune to interview Colonel Corso. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I think a total of three or four times, perhaps. And he articulated some of the technology that he alleges he passed on from the Roswell crash to American industry. Um, you know about all that? Well, yes. He, I guess he worked for a fellow named Trudeau. Right. And uh, he was given the Roswell file, and they back-engineered, re-engineered uh, That's right. some items. Uh, you know, uh, we... Uh, Don and I, we, we don't follow that trail. It's uh, Our mission is to follow the trail leading to whether this event really happened or it didn't happen. Uh, something like back engineering and whether things like transistors and Velcro and fiber optics came from the Roswell crash, uh, that's not on our radar. All right. You're, you're, you, you want to verify the crash itself. Yes, the crash recovery, uh, cover-up, that sort of thing. Would you call this affidavit that I read a little while ago? Um, smoking would you, gun? Well, smoking gun, holy grail, whatever. Certainly a smoking gun. Uh, the holy grail for us is an actual piece of what we call the memory metal. This is that... Uh, oh. This is that metal that's been described by various witnesses... Uh, uh, You're saying you have a piece? Uh, no, I, I say we're looking for a piece. Oh, that, that, oh. That's our holy grail, where you can just uh, wad it up in your hand, uh, and it feels like you have nothing in your hand, and you, you turn it over, and it, you drop it on a flat surface, and it just flattens right out in about mm-hmm. a second yes. to the original shape. That's yeah, According to the affidavit, uh, there were pieces of that or something around. passed around virtually hand-to-hand. Yes. Yes. 
we've spoken to a number of witnesses who have uh, seen and held uh, that sort of uh, uh, material. And uh, the reason we call it the Holy Grail of Roswell is because you don't, if you have a piece of that, you go on camera and you don't have to send it away to be analyzed uh, for isotopic uh, constituents. You can just uh, visually see that it's something truly extraordinary, Mm -hmm. that you don't have to send it out. And uh, certainly they had nothing like that in 1947. I don't think they have anything like that today, at least from the descriptions that we've heard. So... That's in your in your investigations, uh, Tom, uh, there obviously have been um, around the world. There have been un- many crashes uh, and contact stories. Um, I-, I wonder if you've gone beyond Roswell. I mean, once you once you believe that this occurred in Roswell, then you have to begin wondering whether it's occurred uh, legitimately elsewhere since. Well, you know, Art, uh, until this case is finished, uh, you know, Don has Don works full-time and so do I. And so we have to focus our attention. Right. And uh, until this case is solved and by uh, – until we're finished with this case, that means either all the witnesses die. Mm-hmm. And, and we're getting close to that point, aren't we? Yes. Um of the people in the pictured in the base yearbook from 1947, of the hundreds that we've called, about 90% of them are gone now. Sure. There's uh, about 10% left, and maybe half of those are infirm to the point that we can't interview them. So we're talking about a shrinking witness pool that uh, certainly by the next uh you know, tenth anniversary, the seventieth anniversary. It's there. There won't be anyone left to uh, to interview. So yeah, uh, we're, we're going to follow this until either the witnesses pass away, we pass away, uh, we find a piece of memory metal, or that uh, day of disclosure uh, it comes to a uh, reality, meaning the government uh, comes clean. I wonder if something uh, with the power. This, this affidavit has power. There's no question about it. And I, I absolutely, I, I wouldn't close out the possibility that at some level somebody is considering whether it's time to come clean. We've heard from one witness. Uh, we didn't uh, uh, believe everything he said because uh, uh, we uh, we. Uh, we caught him fabricating uh, documents. This was after he passed away, but he was, we believe, he was connected. And uh, in the uh, in his final days, he's told us that the uh, the game continues. And what is that game? He said uh, they're ru- they're trying to run out the clock. Well, the clock is running out. Yep. Um, but the, the, the problem with any witness, of course, uh, once you've caught him in a lie, uh, you've got then all the material is suspect. Yes, yes. But we knew this gentleman for years, and uh, uh, we at the, 
we're still debating what what his role was. And just to be very clear, we're absolutely not talking about Walter Hout here. No, no, uh, absolutely not talking about Walter Hout. Okay. His his story was consistent over the years, but uh, uh, you, you had to believe he had to know more than just the original press release, just from where he was placed. And if you if you read his body language, his language was I have I am keeping a secret, yeah, uh, and you're I'm not going to tell you what it is. And rather than lie about it, he would just uh, when you pressed him, he would just say, Oh, I I it was a long time ago. I did he ever allude to uh, Did he ever allude to what he signed? No, no. After after we. After we knew he signed it, uh, we we didn't, you know, we just didn't ask him any more questions. Because... You're talking about the affidavit now, right? Yes. After he uh-huh. after two. No, no. I meant originally. Uh, did he ever allude to what he might have originally signed in terms of some sort of promise or security document? Oh no. We, in fact, I don't. Uh, we we don't believe he did sign one. Uh, uh, unless it's in, I can't remember now if it's in the affidavit or not. But uh, the promise to Butch Blanchard was enough for him. Well, we all, you know, everybody in the service took an oath. And I guess he was, uh, I guess he was keeping that oath. Yes, he was keeping the oath. And more importantly, his, uh, his promise to, uh, to Blanchard. Because mm-hmm. they were uh, good friends. And uh, uh, Walter could have followed him to, you know, to Washington and, uh, uh, to, uh, you know, maybe a star or two. Did uh, Blanchard ever make any statements? Very few. Uh, in uh, a few years after this happened, he was attending a function in Roswell, and he spoke to, I believe it was Art McQuitty, who was the uh, publisher of the, uh, I get confused if he was the publisher of the uh Roswell Morning Dispatch, or he was the, one of the owners of KSWS, the radio mm-hmm. station. But right. McQuitty uh, asked him, uh, what was that stuff back in 47? And uh, all Blanchard said was it was the strangest thing he'd ever seen. The strangest thing he'd ever seen. Hmm. And uh, Well, that certainly wouldn't be consistent with uh... a balloon. <laughs> at all <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he made some statements at home whenever his family uh pressed him uh dad what was that what was that mm-hmm. uh his daughter uh dale mentioned uh in an article that was published in 1996 that whenever he they asked him about Roswell, he would like stare off into space and say, mm-hmm. "The Russians have some amazing things." <laughs> That's all he said. The Russians have some amazing things, and that no. was the end of the conversation. No, not that amazing. Um, and and who uh, obviously Walter Hout? Uh, who who would you rate next in importance in terms of the witnesses? Uh, wow. Um, certainly Edwin Easley, the who, who, who uh, said? provost marshal, uh-huh. who 
uh, when Randall interviewed him, I think it was 1989, he just kept repeating, I can't tell you anything, I'm still sworn to secrecy. Uh, now, you know, what kind of balloon, you know, it just doesn't hold up that uh, a rubber balloon is something that will cause you to be sworn to secrecy. Not at all, nor, nor even, uh, and what year was that that he said that? Uh, 1989, uh-huh. or even uh, in there. Yeah. But uh, later on, we found out that when he was on his deathbed, his uh, granddaughter came in with a copy of Randall and Schmidt's. I don't know if it was their first book or their second book, uh, but it was about Roswell. And she said, "Granddad, what about this?" Held up the book in front of him, and he said, "Oh, the creatures." Oh, the creatures. And we know oh. from other witnesses that he was out at the crash site. They saw him out there. In fact, his daughter, who's a lawyer today, uh, was part of the uh, archaeological team, the volunteers digging uh, in 2002 for the sci-fi documentary, uh, 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 The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence. She was out there. She wanted to see where her father had been. And uh, if he had done a good job of uh, cleaning up the site. Apparently so. Yes. Uh, has there been, in all the years, in all the attempts, has there been anything at all uh, found? Any small anything? Well, in uh, 2002, we had the uh, the financial backing of the Sci-Fi Channel, and we had a team of archaeologists... Uh, degreed uh, archaeologist from the University of New Mexico leading us mm-hmm. and uh, one of the we did find some things and before I tell you I, I just want to say that uh, it, it, we dug in an area that in my opinion uh, was not prime for finding what we were looking for and By yet. That I mean a piece of metal uh, you know, some of that uh, memory metal or, or some of the rigid metal. So what did you find? What we found were a number of small items that the archaeologists couldn't identify. They had the appearance of something natural, uh, but they couldn't identify them, and they never could. But the, But their final conclusion was, well, they must be something, but we just can't identify them. <laughs> uh, we also found a... Uh, the rubber sole of a military boot. Which Probably one of those who had been conducting the original search, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, All right, listen, Tom, hold, hold tight. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, Tom Carey is my guest. Subject is Roswell, and there certainly is lots of breaking news associated with it. Uh, when we come back, we're going to open the phone line, so those of you that know the numbers and have a question, and I can't imagine you wouldn't have one, you can dial now. We'll be right back. Here I am. My guest is Tom Carey. That's T-H-O-M, by the way, Tom Carey, C-A-R-E-Y. His book is Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, and it's only out now a very short time. Amazon.com, all the usual places. The um, affidavit uh, that I read is in the book, as is so very much more about Roswell. So if it's in uh, your gray basket as a friend of ours would say, and uh, you want to pull it out or decide for yourself, 
This would be your opportunity. Uh, pick up that book, do the read, and figure it out for yourself. We'll be right back. Well, all right, Tom, in a moment, we're going to go to the phones. Uh, however, uh, who is Major Patrick Saunders? Major Patrick Saunders was the uh, 509th, uh, uh, the, the Roswell base adjutant uh, to Colonel Blanchard. Okay. And uh, he died in 1995, but before he died, he bought up a bunch of copies of Randall and Schmidt's second book, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Yes. But I'm and, sorry, what year was it he died? Uh. 1995. 95. I thought you said 45. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, 1995. And uh, in 19... Uh, so right before he died, he bought up a bunch of uh, copies of uh, the, the second Randall and Schmidt book. The first page inside the book was a page uh, entitled Damage Control. And, and in uh, it, it told about what the authors believed uh, the uh, happened to the records. They uh, were vacuumed. Uh, serial numbers were changed uh, so that uh, people looking in the future couldn't really track down anybody, and, and records were were uh, destroyed. Uh, above this uh, heading damage control, which uh, was on the first page inside, Patrick Saunders wrote in uh, hand wrote, Here's the truth, and I still haven't told anybody anything, exclamation point. This is right before he passed away. Really? And uh, we thought at the time, well, he just must he just must be uh, talking about the book in general. Well, after the uh, key witness in the book uh, imploded, uh, that would be Frank Kaufman, one of the uh, main witnesses in this book, uh, we caught him in number of fabrications. We started thinking, well, I, I did right away. Uh, I, I, you know, I thought, well, geez, what, what could he have been talking about? So I looked at that page again, and uh, the closeness of his handwritten note to the damage control paragraph, I, I had an epiphany at that point that this is what he was talking about, not the book in general, but what followed in that paragraph. Well, which was, which was that uh, he basically had uh, been in charge of uh, 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 covering the trail, covering the paper trail mm -hmm. was already in place at Roswell back in 1947. There would have been a lot of cleanup, I, you know, paperwork wise, people wise. It would have been a hell of a job. Yes. But uh, a few months ago, uh, I received an email from Kevin Randall, one of the co-authors of the book. Right. And he had come to independently come to the same epiphany. And uh, so we compared notes and uh, we both agreed that that's what the Patrick Saunders was talking about, is that he was the one who initiated the mm -hmm. vacuuming of the files, the covering the paper trail. And if you remember, Art, the uh, Government Accounting Office in 1993 and 1994, when they were looking for a paper trail, oh, yes. they found out that it was inexplicably missing. Uh, there was none. It was, yeah, it was a, right. there was a, uh, that's right. uh, uh the, 
papers out of Roswell were inexplicably destroyed without apparent authority. Well, you recall a congressman looking very, very hard uh, for that information and coming up empty. Empty. And now we know from Patrick Saunders that uh, the the, uh, vacuuming, the destruction of the paper trail, not that he did it all, but it started with him. Gotcha. All right. That's in our book. All right. And uh, and a lot more. Um, All right. Here we go. John in Houston, Texas. Uh, You're you're on with Tom. Hi. Hi, Art. I'm proud to be talking with you. Thank you. Enjoy your show all these years. And Mr. Carey, thank you for your work. Uh, My father was the flight operations officer that night, and uh, he was the flight operations officer on the plane that uh, Mr. Marcel flew out of there. And I wondered if you had talked with him. I know Mr. Schmidt and Mr. Randall have interviewed him for their other books. Uh, Do you mean uh, Bob Shirky? Yes, that's my dad. Oh, yes. Well, hello. Hi there. (laughs) Yes, we... uh... Uh, you know, we talk to Bob as often as we can. I understand he's in a he's in a uh, assisted care facility now. Is that that's, that's correct? Yes, he's had some health problems and he's not going to make it to Roswell this year, and he's sad about that. And we're all hoping he gets better. But he's uh, he was great guy, uh, great guy. We've uh, talked to him often, and uh, his story is. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you what. Why don't we ask uh, since. <laughs> Since we got his son on the line, why don't we ask what your dad told you? Well, he uh, didn't talk about it. He was like all those other fellows. Nobody talked until 1989, and uh, all of a sudden it broke. I was watching television one night and saw my dad on TV, and I went, my God, and I called him, and I said, what in the world is this? And uh, he laid it out to me and told me he had stood with Colonel Blanchard and watched them load the wreckage and told me what it looked like and said it was nothing none of them had ever seen before. And my dad was a pilot. He just happened to be the operations officer that night. They all traded jobs so everybody would know each other's job, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a pilot. And uh, Do you remember the, his exact words when, when he described what he saw? He just told me he saw pieces of, uh, it looked like metal beams, and it had strange writing on it, and none mm-hmm. of them knew what it was. And it wasn't in hieroglyphics, and it wasn't anything that any of them had ever seen before. And uh, Glenn Dennis, the man that sent the uh, caskets to the funeral home, uh, I've known him all my life. I was born in Roswell in 1949, and uh, my family, we knew Glenn Dennis. He took care of the funerals for my grandparents and a lot of my relatives. And Walter Hott lived around the corner from my aunt and uncle. And uh, I've known those men all my life. And they were just stand-up guys, and they they didn't all get together in a coffee shop one afternoon to say, "Hey, let's make a story." Uh, yeah, I hear you. So when you when you heard this affidavit of Walter Hout, it rang true to you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was a stand-up guy. I mean, none of those men, not like I said, none of those men were even talking. They never talked about this. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever said a word about this until uh, till I guess Stanton Freeman and those fellas. Mr. Randall and Mr. Smith went out, and they all started looking into it. And uh, the dam broke, and then everybody else started coming out with their stories. And Is there anything your dad told you you haven't made public? Uh, he he told me pretty much what Walter Hot had said. Walter and, and my dad were, were friends, were good friends, and, and Walter had told my dad about the bodies and about what he had seen. And my dad told me about that. Wow. And, uh, so I've known that since 1989. And your your dad was 
no, let me get this straight. Um, your dad was a witness to the same thing that Walter Hout was? No, he didn't. He didn't ever say he saw the bodies. He just saw the material being loaded onto the B twenty nine. Okay. He, but Walter had Walter had talked to my dad and told him about the about the bodies and about the other things. And there were there were a lot of people that you know they didn't they kept it all pretty close to the vest. They, nobody wanted to get in trouble, and uh, mm-hmm. they were all they were all very strict military men. They they lived up to their oath of silence. They didn't want to they didn't want to mess it up. I mean, they were they were stand up guys, and anybody. That, It'll do a little homework. I know I have some friends that, that think I'm just, you know, they just go, okay, great, you know. And I go, okay, well, do a little research. Mm-hmm. They were men of America's greatest generation. Yeah, I was going to say it's a very different generation right now. Well, there's just so many people. I have the same name as my father. I'm a junior. So after this broke, I was getting phone calls from all over the place, and I finally just had to get an answering machine because is is your father in Houston now? No, no, he's in a he's on uh, assisted living uh, outside Las Vegas. Oh, uh, New Mexico or? Oh, in uh, Nevada. Okay, because I tried to find him when well, I heard that he, that he was in assisted, and I, I called all around. And uh, well, if you'll take me off the air, I'll be glad to give you his number. All right. Uh, why don't we do this, uh, Tom? You want to provide? Do you have an email uh, address, yeah. Tom? Yes, my you you can reach me at uh, T Carey. That's T C A R E Y. Followed by the numerals one nine four seven at aol dot com. Did you get that caller? Yes, I'm writing it down right now. All right, that's T Carey. T C A R E Y one nine four seven at aol dot com. Okay. All right. I've got it. It'll be tomorrow. So, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, let's keep that private. Uh, John, thank you so very much. Well, thank you for all your work, and, and you too, Mr. Carey, and keep it up. My Take pleasure. Care. Nice talking to you. Nice to talk to you, please. Thank you, sir. Wow. All right. Uh, to Carol in Claremont, California, you're on with uh, Tom. Well, I'll try my best, sir, but I want to say my jaw is on my chest after what I've been hearing. Yeah. Um, I, I am so dramatically shocked to be kind of even a fringe player on this evening. I can hardly believe my fortune. Uh, and I want to thank you all. I, I have in my possession a, a clip from the 1890s from a newspaper in Michigan where uh, one of my father's uh, grandfather's employees saw a UF over a railroad. So I've sort of been a lifelong interest uh, person here. I want to also give you quick information. Um, on my Internet, I was able to find out Art McQuitty, uh, you re- referenced him earlier, and you didn't know if he was the KSWS or... Um, yeah, apparently he was the dispatch, right? the dispatch, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, indeed. But um, I, I'm, I'm very curious, and I'm puzzled about the heavy-handed tactics um, oh, yes. that apparently, according to a lot of documentaries I've seen, um, tactics used um, verbally, uh, threats, um, something as melodramatic as actually uh, taking a, 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 a truncheon. Is that, is that the right word? Uh, yes. And, and pounding it in a palm and saying, you don't remember any of this. Um, this didn't happen. You didn't see thus and so. Um, do you, what, what do you know of this? Well, in our book, we, we bring out the, some of the, uh, the heavy, as you call them, heavy-handed tactics that our Air Force used to silence witnesses. Uh, one thing that wasn't uh, previously known was that uh, they uh, – turned the homes of the ranchers up in uh, Corona, upside down and inside out, looking for pieces of 
uh, debris that they thought they had uh, taken from the site. They just uh, they ripped up floorboards. They they cut into meal sacks that they used uh, to feed the cattle. They just turned that place upside down. Uh, as far as threatening witnesses, they specialized in threatening the witnesses, uh, civilian witnesses that had seen the bodies. And uh, what they would do is they would, uh, if it was, uh, you know, a, a, a child and a, fa- and, a, and a parents, they would take the, the child into one room and say, we're going to kill your parents. And they would take the oh, parents God. into another room saying, we're going to kill your child. Just, uh, just awful stuff. And uh, that shows you how serious this was, that they would threaten civilians with uh, a death to uh, keep quiet. Now, what they did uh, was that they employed the sheriff of Roswell, George Wilcox, to deliver the message uh, to civilians. Not all civilians, but uh, most of the civilians. Uh, the uh, Surviving Wilcox family said that the Roswell incident destroyed him; that he never, never ran for sheriff again, and uh, we suspect uh, that they forced him to deliver these messages to threaten people uh, with their lives. That uh, really uh, have you actually um, had a witness say that they were so, th- so so threatened? Oh yes, yes. By him? Yes. The uh, the Anaya brothers and uh, Pete Anaya's wife uh, recall vividly when Wilcox came around. Uh, the Anaya brothers had uh, uh, they were uh, friends of uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Joseph Little Joe Montoya at the time, and Montoya had seen the bodies mm-hmm. in the hangar, and it really just uh, shook him up. And he had the Anayas pick him up over at the base, and uh, he told them the whole story. And uh, a few days later, uh, Sheriff Wilcox came calling. And uh, shortly after that, they brought in the uh, Senator Dennis Chavez to speak to the uh, Anaya brothers, never to speak about this, or else, uh, uh, as Pete tells it, he said, the uh, FBI will get you. (laughs) So uh, they used uh, uh, Senator Chavez. They used uh, Sheriff Wilcox. Uh, They had... uh, the uh, majority owner of the radio station KGFL uh, uh, escort Brazel uh, around to the media to get when he when they had him change his story. So uh, with uh, uh, Walt Whitmore, they uh, they threatened him with loss of his FCC license. So uh, that's how they got to the, the civilians because, as you know, the military has no direct authority over civilians unless uh, it's a time of uh, martial law that's right um all right greg in uh, cape cod massachusetts hi there uh, you're on with tom carey hi art and tom this is greg from cape cod how are you doing okay. hi greg uh, i thought you guys would be interested and this might be reopened now if you remember that special they did on either the discovery channel or tlc where they had general ramey holding those papers in his hands right in front of the weather balloon lie, but that guy, I can't recall his name with the computer, you know, enhanced that and blew it up, and we could actually read what was on the right. paper. That's right, they yes. They what was really going on. 
Yes, that was David Rudiak did the most work on that. Uh huh. And uh, but it's <laughs> it's a great uh, story because uh, who would have thought that the architect of the Roswell cover-up, General Ramey, would provide one of the keys <laughs> to unlocking the case because. Uh, uh, we now have computer programs that can uh, enhance that uh, memo that he was holding. No, he, he certainly could not have imagined that then. <laughs> exactly. That's more proof, Art, and I agree with you that this is the holy grail, this guy's deathbed letter. That's just one more piece of the puzzle to confirm it. it. It's hard to refute because we know its provenance. It's not something that you can trace back to a... Uh, uh, a UFO investigator with an agenda. It's something held by General Ramey himself. And I know when I first looked at it, I got a copy of it, and I looked at it, and I didn't know what it, I didn't know what it was going to say. I thought it might have something to do with, uh, you know, the uh, water condenser at uh, uh, <laughs> Fort Worth was not working. Who, who knew what it was going to say? But the, the words victims of the wreck just yeah. jumped right out at me. And... What, what sort of weather balloon has uh, victims? I thought that was fascinating. It becomes more fascinating now with this new news. It certainly does. Um, it seems to me, in fact, as just me, but it cinched it for me, uh, uh, Greg. Uh, what I heard tonight, what I read tonight, just completely cinched it for me. That's all there is to it. It seems to me it's so cinched that somebody in... In charge, somebody in power is going to have to respond to what's been on the air tonight. They have to. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And if they don't, then I don't know what we're to think of uh, of our own government. And uh, exactly, it's time. It's it's time and past time. So. Yeah. All right, buddy. Thank you very very much for the call. Take care, uh, Tom. We're up at a break, so. Stand by, and we'll be back. If you uh, have a relevant question for Tom Carey, who's written a book called Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, How Timely Can It Get? (laughs) Uh, Come on ahead. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. And what a ride, huh? If programs get bigger than this, I don't know how. Tom Carey is my guest. His book is Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. We'll be right back. Well, all right, Tom, is there anything uh, in the program thus far tonight? There's <laughs> been a lot, uh, probably too much from your point of view, uh, that we have not aired that we should. Oh, uh, could I just make one uh, one small correction? The, the full title of the book is Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. I'm sorry, it wasn't here. Okay. <laughs> Witness to Roswell. Well, that'll help people in looking it up. <laughs> Witness to Roswell unmasking the 60-year cover-up. That's quite a correction. All right, thank you. Um, but aside from that, Tom, anything else that uh, we should be getting on the air tonight that you wanted to get on that we yes. haven't? Uh, the uh, reason we wrote the book, Art, was to uh, put out uh, m- most of the, uh, not most, but many new witnesses to the case. Uh, everybody knows the the original witnesses, but we we've been uncovering, prying loose, whatever you want to term it, new witnesses since we teamed up in 1998. 
and we wanted to give them a voice. We wanted to tell their story in their own words. It's not our interpretation of what they said. So that was the purpose in writing the book, uh, to get their, their stories out. Okay, so people can read the witness testimony and decide for themselves. Yes. Um, all right, all the way over to the United Kingdom on the international line. Michelle, you're on with Tom. Hello, Art. This is Oscar Art. No, it isn't. And it's, uh, I, I don't know how that got screened. I have no idea how that got screened. Uh, Diane in Dallas, you're on with Tom. Oh, hi, Tom and Art. Art, I, I just got to tell you, I'm a longtime listener for about 10 years. And I really appreciate you and and George and Ian. And I wanted to tell you that whenever you received your Lifelong Achievement Award, I downloaded the picture of you three fellas and put you up on my little personal shrine of my greatest, best teachers in the world. Thank you, Diane. I thank you. <laughs> okay. Do you have a question for Tom? Well, I do. I, I, I missed a little bit of the show earlier. And whenever you started talking about the preacher... My my, uh, I wanted to ask you if you've been able to get contact with his son, who is living in uh, Richardson, Texas, and and I wanted to ask you if um, if, if if this is the same preacher because um, I have I'm I'm not sure who you're talking. Tom, do you know who she's talking I about? I do not know who she's talking about. All righty. Well, let me just tell you very quickly. Uh, I just recently, uh, past couple of years connected with a, a high school friend of mine who we were very close and we're still close today and he told me he had a neighbor who uh, was the son of a preacher who was asked to come out and pray over the bodies at Roswell uh-huh. and he told me that uh, his father he's a minister now himself and he's in his 60s and his father has since passed away, and and really that's all I know except that they had told the story about how a, another rancher or farmer was showing uh, the the preacher, uh, and it, it, I don't, I'm not sure about the son being there, but this is the story that he told my my dear friend was that they he had his um, rancher neighbor had a piece of the material and showed it to him and was willing to give him a piece except he said he couldn't cut it. But he, they demonstrated how they could farm it into a cone, put fire underneath it, and water in the cone. And, of course, the water was never affected. It didn't warm up, heat up, or anything. Wow. And, was of the, course, uh, they just couldn't cut any of it off. Tom? Was he a Roswell preacher? Yes, sir. You know, uh, this is interesting uh, because... And I'd love to give you my, my friends name and number. Well, listen, don't do it here. Um, do, do you have the email address that we gave out? Yes, I do. And I, okay. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, All right. I'll contact you by email. This is interesting, Art, because uh, I was looking for a preacher. Uh, there were, We got a story of a Roswell preacher, uh, just like she says, that had been called out to, uh, you know, uh, pray over the, past, the last rites, whatever, whatever was uh, required, but I never could locate him. Mm. And uh, there was a, I finally gave up when I did, loc- uh, I did locate him. He w- had passed away, and he's uh, buried in Roswell. Maybe you've got a new lead now. 
this appears to be the same uh, lead, uh, not not you know the same preacher, but I would certainly love the contact information to follow up on this. My guess is it's on the way. Uh, James in Lincoln, Nebraska, you're on with Tom Carey. Hey, I appreciate that. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful story so far. My questions for you are about the um, broader implications of what was happening in 1947 and things like uh, Operation Paperclip with the Nazi scientists coming over. Yes. Uh, the uh, uh, Admiral Byrd's expedition to the South Pole where they had... Uh, uh, the UFO uh, bases, or the U-boat bases, secret bases. Was there a secret war going on at this time? And what, you know, was Roswell kind of at a center of that, you know, based on, well, this was where the bomber wing that took, that dropped the uh, atomic bombs in um, the end of World War II. I'm, I just, I'm kind of wondering, you know, with this piece of the puzzle coming in, it's starting to make a lot of those other questions a lot more important. Um, any comments? Well, uh, I, I'm not sure about a secret war, but certainly New Mexico was the hub of uh, uh, military activity in 1947. We had the White Sands Proving Grounds uh, uh, west of Roswell, where the captured German V-2 rockets were being tested. Uh, we had the development of the atomic bomb in New Mexico with the first detonation in 1945 at Trinity site. Uh, had Los Alamos there, a uh, number of air bases, and the, and the only atomic bomb strike force in the world was stationed at Roswell. So uh, we don't like to speculate, but if I'm uh, flying through the universe and... Uh, uh, would want to pick a place to visit on Earth it, 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 in 1947. It, it might be New Mexico, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, and certainly Operation uh, Paperclip. The uh, captured German scientists were housed at uh, Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, at the time, uh, headed up by uh, Werner von Braun. And we did get a lead from a woman in. Uh, Georgia a few years ago, she had a college roommate in 1964 whose father was one of the paperclip Germans, mm. and uh, she told the story that her father told her that he saw the Roswell aliens, and this is in 1964 or earlier, uh, uh, from the Roswell crash. Uh, unfortunately, we, we've never been able to find the roommate uh, of our source. Okay. You know, it's always made sense to me, Tom, that uh, if there are others out there, and I am convinced there are, our um, our detonation of a, a nuclear weapon above ground would, uh, beyond anything else, yep. uh, yeah, it would be a beacon, all right, saying uh, this civilization has just reached a certain level. I don't know how they'd regard that level, but... It would be like a beacon in the night, and yes. who knows? Maybe it brought that visit. Uh, David in Sherman Oaks, California, you're on the air with Tom Carey. Hello, Tom. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. How are you? 
Oh, very, very good. Uh, I was listening to your story this morning, and uh, I, I've followed the Roswell incident for many years, and it seems like the water's really muddy on this case here. You get so many different conflicting uh, reports about what they look like, what the craft is, how many craft there were. I mean, I've got everything from an E.T. looking like, uh, uh, E.T. looking for the the one in the movie, E.T., Steven Spielberg's looking like that, all the way from uh, children-like. So it's really hard to figure out what's going on. But I, I worked on a stealth fighter, F-117A project, if you're familiar with that at all. Yes. The uh, Was it the uh, Nighthawk or? Uh... The F-117, stealth. Bomber. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it was built in uh, stealth built aircraft. In are you talking about the the bomber or the the fighter? The fighter, the fighter, fighter one seventeen. Okay, the one that has the irregular yeah. shaped edges and stuff, yeah. Sort yeah. Of, yeah. triangular shaped. Uh, well, it, it it had irregular shape uh, to uh, in order to uh, deflect radar as well as the composite materials. Anyway, go ahead, caller. Yeah. Okay. Well, I worked on that project, and and it was called Have Blue when you first started it, as you know. The word blue is connected to UFO investigation and reverse engineering projects. So when we, we, we were first uh, told that this, this thing that we're developing is similar to something that was reverse engineered, okay? Now, this aircraft was made of all composite material. And outer skin portion, before we put the special paint on it, was made out of a material precisely exactly what you described is a, a foil. It's a plastic foil. You, you, you wad it up in your hand. As soon as you open up your hand, it turns completely flat. And guess what? The military spec, the MLS spec, is this. Won't burn, tear, or fuse, which means you can't tear it, you can't burn it, or anything. It's incredibly strong and durable. And it exactly, when I hear this Roswell incident, that's someone holding something in their hand, they could bend it up and curl it up, and, and, and it, it, it's precisely like the material we used on F-117A. And uh, looking at that, I'm, it, it's, it's just bizarre how, how much of a coincidence that is. And then number, number two here, I've um, talked to people, you know, being around the project and stuff, and asked them about uh, UFO stuff because they were talking about UFO reconnaissance and using a stealth fighter actually to get close to UFOs to get pictures of it since, you know, it's a radar absorbent and reflective. And um, they said that we actually have some uh, uh, hybrid uh, beings in some facilities that help with technology, and I found it completely bizarre when I first heard that. But um, here, you want the smoking gun on UFOs. I, I, I really, <laughs> and Art Bell, you, he's so passionate about this UFO thing that I'll really um, give it to you right now, okay? The UFO research, basically most UFOs globally admit have an orange uh, uh, orb or to them. They're like a glowing orange light, okay? They look like a, a glowing orb, an orb, basically. Okay, when most people see these um, devices, most of them will land in, in uh, area, wooded areas. Now, the government came to this conclusion and said, okay, the first people who's going to be on scene at any UFO, when UFO lands, a lot of the time they're having a problem. They just don't land and become vis visible to people. They're, you know, <laughs> there's something wrong. The UFO lands and people see it, there's something wrong with the craft. So, the government said, okay, who's going to be the first on scene? Is it going to be the police officers? No. It's going to be the fire department. Why? Because when a UFO lands and it's flickering orange, it looks like a fire. Okay? People, when they see a flickering orange, uh, right. something in the, in the bushes, they go, oh, my God, there's a fire. They call looks the fire like department. Fire. Yeah. So the fire department is on the scene first. So guess what? Here's your smoking gun. Every single fire department in the United States of America has an instruction manual. And guess what's in that manual on one of the pages? how to deal with craft UFOs, extraterrestrial craft. 
is inside of every fire department in the United States. You can get a photocopy of that, go to any fire department, they have it in there, how, what to deal with an extraterrestrial craft. Now, if they don't exist, what's that doing in every fire department in the United States? Do you know the uh, designation of that manual? Um, it's a standard operating procedure manual that every fire department has, and it only has maybe about three or 400 pages. And you could uh, look, look in it, talk to any fireman, go through it, and it will say right there, it says how to deal Got with... All right, David, we'll take it from there. We'll, we'll certainly verify that or knock it down, but that's very interesting. Had you uh, heard that, Tom? Yes, I've heard the uh, part about the, uh, the manual. Uh, I used to know the name, uh, but I can't recall it right now. He makes a good point. <laughs> it, would be, it would be regarded probably as a fire, flickering orange, um, and so they might be the first responders. Interesting, that would be in the manual. Yes, and I... I I did see that. Uh, I, I I I don't recall what the manual's called. Uh, I think it has some sort of uh, acronym. I'm but sure it, it does. He is right about that. Okay, Ed in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You're on with uh, Tom Carey. Good morning, Art. Good morning, Tom. My name's Ed. Uh, Hi, Ed. Fantastic show tonight. Thank you for the show. Um, a comment, a brief comment, and a question, please. Um, I don't know if any either of you had watched during the 50th anniversary of Roswell on uh, Good Morning America. Joan London was interviewing the general who had the press conference for the Case Closed book. He was a many decorated... Oh, decorated. Richard, we- Richard Weaver or... Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, he had Andrew. a bunch of decorations on his lapel. A lot of uh, fruit salad. And uh, mm-hmm. she was interviewing him. And uh, he was telling her about how they, the dummies were found on... Roswell, and that they, the people, the locals mistook the dummies for being aliens. And, you know, uh, Joan London even looked at him and said, but excuse me, uh, General, uh, Roswell, uh, the dummies was, were part of the alleged Project Mogul, which took place in 1954, and Roswell was in 1947. And with a straight face, this general looked at her, and he, and he said, well, you know those old people, they get 1947 and 1954 confused. <laughs> he said this on national television, and I taped it at the time. A lot of the media was like belittling the people that were celebrating the 50th, the 50th anniversary. And yeah, I'm, of course. Yes, they were. I'm going to watch it for it again. Now, my question is, uh, I don't know if you've ever interviewed uh, one of the daughters of one of the firemen that was a guest on, on at the time uh, in the media said that they were roughhoused by the MP that were uh, on the scene. Frankie now. Rowe, yes. Okay, I didn't know her name, but I thought, is she included in your book? Because her, her story was pretty compelling. She's not only included her uh, pictures in there, too, that I took. Okay, yes, great. And if, you get a copy, if you can get a copy of that Good Morning America uh, episode, it was pretty shocking. And Joan London got fired shortly afterwards. I don't know if it was related, but it was it was pretty shocking the way it appeared because it was kind of stunted. They went to a commercial immediately. Really? Yeah, really the notion that you can... Mix up decades, something that took place in the 1940s with with something that took place in the mid 1950s. It, it just uh, uh, is uh, laughable on its face, because uh, what people do is they remember things by what the grade in school they were, what songs were popular, where they sure. lived, sure. and that's how they do it. At least that's how I do it, and. Uh, I may mix up a, a year or part of year, but... But not a not, decade. Not a decade. No, no I'm with you. 
songs are used for that ID uh, yes. IDing deca- decades. Uh, David in Mesa, Arizona, you're on with Tom Carey. A uh, pleasure. I have a question for Tom, but I want to first say I'm a long-time listener. Since Richard C. Hoagland told you about what was going on with weather experimentation in Alaska, I'm a 30-year veteran of the United States Air Force and here in America. Yes, sir. And I want to ask your guest, Tom, why he thinks this has taken so long for this to come out that it was a reality, what was first told to the American public in 1947. My father was working for the Philadelphia Naval Yard when the Philadelphia Experiment took place. Yes, sir. Well, it's still not out. I mean, it's not out officially. Uh, why has it taken so long to begin to break in the way it is tonight? I, I don't have that answer. I mean, this information has been out there uh, for a while now. It's just one of those things where the media... I don't know what they do. They sit on something until some magical switch gets thrown. And, uh, uh, Tom, uh, you can be proud to have been uh, part of throwing that switch. Yes, the herd mentality. Uh, They're looking for someone to uh, go first, I guess. Uh, As far as the case uh, taking so long is that, you know, investigators, civilian investigators, did not get on the case until 1978. Well, Tom, you've done, listen, we're at the end of the program, my friend. You have done an incredible job. This is going to go down as a completely classic program. And, Tom, we'll have you back again. You can be sure of that. Wonderful job. And all I can say is keep it up and good luck with the book. But you won't need it. It'll sell like hotcakes. Uh, Art, it's been my distinct pleasure to be on with you tonight. Take care, my friend, and uh, good night. And for the rest of you, uh, we'll rest for 24 and see you then. Good night.